Good morning and welcome to the Isle of Faces podcast. Welcome to part six of Scraps and Scrolls slash Valor to 4, A Dance with Dragons. Hello and welcome. Pull up a chair here on the aisle. I am Sir Buckley, your lead green person. I'm speaking to you from a, well, I'll be honest, it's absolutely tipping it down here in jolly old England slash the aisle. Torrential rain, lots of wind. We still had to take the dog out in it, of course, so I'm nice and damp and muddy, but still, the weather is always nice on the aisle, so we'll keep that energy going. As always, I'd like to thank you, firstly, for being here. That's very nice of you. But for your commenting and downloading and sharing and liking and all the other things you do that make this worth it. I know it's still tough times over there in the States, still very tense. We're, of course, still in lockdown here in the UK and all over the world because you're listening from all over the world. My stats tell me so. We're all facing similar problems, so I hope the aisle continues to be a bit of a reliever for you, a bit of a treat. Certainly, that makes me feel like this is worth it more than anything else. A special thank you to patrons, as always, those who are on the higher tiers of the Isle of Faces patron they are treated to the this month's scrap scribbles that's right that's what I'm calling my new fiction writing every month I'm posting some of my own stuff just as a little extra treat this month it was some sci-fi flash fiction that I've had published in a uh, anthology last year so that's pretty cool hope you like that and if you want to have a look you know where to go and only really one more thing to cover here before we get going because this is going to be a big episode I don't want to delay you any further and that is of course who won the guessing which chapter gets the most airtime competition last week? And I can tell you it was at Joggy98 or possibly Yogi98. I'm not sure where you're tweeting from. But they guessed Tyrion 5 for last week's longest chapter or the most airtime for a chapter. And is therefore now on the leaderboard. I believe you are still one point behind at end or F. They've still got the lead. But that could all have changed by the time you're listening to this. Someone might have guessed the correct answer for today. And what are we doing today then? We have another four chapters for you, and there's actually a bit of mirroring in them, a bit of nice patterning from George here. I know, who would guess? We have two very, very dark chapters. In fact, we have what's the darkest chapter of the book. I know I said that about Varamir, but this is for kind of different reasons. Don't worry, I'll cover that when we get to it. I'm talking, of course, about Theon and Tyrion. That is our first and third chapter. And then wedged in between is Jon and Daenerys. And they have very, very similar chapters today, even more similar than usual in them showing off why exactly they are good leaders, why they are a good king or queen. And yet again, wouldn't you know it, they're saving people. So we get two quite nice ones, quite inspiring ones, and two not so nice ones. And yes, I will have to give a bit of a caveat to Tyrion 6, our third chapter of the day. Let me warn you, there's some, some not very nice stuff in there, some stuff you might not want to uh, be listening to. I certainly didn't want to talk about it, but felt it was required of me. So what I've done is pulled some editing magic, and when we get to that kind of stuff, because there's a lot of other stuff in Tyrion as well, political stuff, influential stuff, very, very important plot-wise stuff but when we get to the uncomfortable part I'm going to tell you where you need to skip ahead to if you don't want to listen to that for which I cannot blame you to be honest with you it's very very difficult to uh, write about that and talk about that but well hopefully we'll get through it together it is still a hell of a chapter there are still loads and I mean loads to break down I mentioned on Twitter the other day it was 13,000 words the notes and then I actually worked out I went and looked at the average for each episode so four chapters normally I'm writing about 26,000 words. Today, it was closer to 33,000 words. And then I worked out if that average holds through the rest of dance, I'm going to end up writing more words than the book. About 80,000 more words than the length of Dance of Dragons. So, well, maybe I need to have a think about my life. But for now, I won't delay you any further. Again, long episode. We'll dive in. We're going to start dark. We'll go light. Then we'll get darker. Luckily, we'll finish a bit lighter with a good old Daenerys chapter. 
Thank you once again. Thank you to all, especially to patrons. Do continue to catch History of Westeros on Sunday nights. I know you don't need a reminder. You're there anyway. Continue to support everybody in the fandom and everybody in general because we all need a helping hand right now. You can even be nice to me if you really like. And in the meantime, let's get going. Let's begin with Theon slash Reek 2. What a way it is to start an episode. We spent so much of Theon 1 building up this broken, disgusting, pitiful man, yet George will immediately give us a chapter to challenge that notion straight away. The persona of Reek is tested to the limits here, and beneath the blood and dirt, we find traces of the man that was Theon. Why? Because Reek is doing exactly what Theon did back in Clash, returning to his own kind, acting ever the prince. It's an incredibly interesting talk in terms of psychology, as so much of both Clash and Dance Theon is of how this return to his past and roots wars against his current broken psyche. That was difficult enough when Theon was desperately trying to prove himself as a Greyjoy while denying the Stark influences that had obviously worked away at him, but this is a new level entirely. This is Theon having to re-embrace a persona he had to abandon due to Ramsay's torture, not just when he wanted to, like before. From that aspect, this chapter is simply another cruel game of Ramsay's that happens to play the part of a test as well, and luckily coincides with doing what his father told him for once. All at the same time, Ramsay is probably genuinely interested in seeing if Theon is still capable of tasks such as these, whether he will use his freedom, quote-unquote freedom, and semi-restoration of self to try and run, or take side with the Ironborn, but he's also keeping his cruel streak, of course, by making Theon realise he's an absolutely broken form of what he once was. He wants to make it abundantly clear how far Theon has fallen by forcing him into a role that highlights those differences, amongst people who will look at him and see the last person they would ever connect with a prince. It's ultimate sociopathy to make and watch Theon go through this, and it can act as a kind of doubling down, a nail in the coffin for Reek, ever returning to a Theon form by giving him just this little taste and then showing how empty it feels. At least that's the intention, but Ramsay might just overshoot a bit in this chapter because of where they are in the world. He happens to have sent Theon to a place that he's been before. That's important in itself for restoration purposes, but not half so important as it being a place that Theon has been to with Rob. Yes, this is the true key to this chapter. The comparisons to the days of old allow us to not only frame how Theon has changed, but what has happened to that grand army galloping south to rescue the Ned. Feast is the Book of War consequences, true, but this chapter certainly hits the same marks as we not only examine the North through that viewpoint, but what became of Balon Greyjoy's war as well. Spoiler, nothing good both of which obviously hit Theon as hard as possible and serve as a superb point to start uncovering what still lies beneath the reek. Let's get going. The half-restoration idea is hit on straight away. Remember at the beginning of Theon 1, this was a soul whose highlight was catching a rat and eating it alive. But now, he's been given a horse, a banner, actual clothes that give him comfort, and he's been washed. All of these are important points. A horse, nice clothes, they are a sign of prestige or wealth or importance at least in a world such as Westeros. The man who began in a dungeon has just leapt up like three social levels at once. A banner is even more important. It indicates you are part of something, you belong, you represent, you matter to someone in the world. When the banner is that of your own house, obviously that feeling is multiplied many times over. Unfortunately, this one is only a peace banner at the moment, but still. You've just gone up another social level. You are nobility. You have people below you you have some indication of power, or at least the illusion of it in this case. Yet I truly believe the most important of these notes from the first paragraph is the last. For once, he did not stink. This is the most basic among what he's been given, but it's also the most personal. Obviously lords and nobles are going to be cleaner than general small folk, and they have much more time and luxuries to concentrate on such. But even the small folk that Theon once sneered at had some level of control over their hygiene. It was something that was theirs, Something that even at their poorest they could put some of their own effort into. 
but even that at its most basic level was stolen from Theo and corrupted until he became utterly repulsive in terms of social interaction. I mean, the clue is in the name. Ramsay has specifically made this the focus of Fionn's new existence. You are horrible. Everyone hates being around you on the most basic level. You can no longer connect with anybody. It's a brilliant way to just separate Fionn even more than he already has. It's the real construction of a wall between Fionn and the rest of the world. Remember, the Walders said it as soon as they opened that dungeon door. After this, once he's served his purpose, he'll go right back to stinking again. True, he'll be washed once more for the wedding, but after that, he's again left to rot and stink. At the end of his arc, when he manages somehow to find Asher in the snow, her main thought before she realises who it is, is that this person stinks. So this very brief reprieve from that is incredibly important and noticeable to Theon. Now that's all just in the first couple of lines, but what about the actual purpose of this chapter? What is he being sent to do? Well, given what Ramsay said at the end of the last Theon chapter, we can already start piecing it together. But more importantly, we get this addition that this is half mission, half Ramsay game. We know about those thanks to the Kyra story we were made to suffer through, and it's hinted at by Damon Dancemi right here. Fionn thinks the same thing about becoming prey again, how easy his horse could be run down, his lack of options for a destination, and you realise that Ramsay is only doing this because he wins whatever happens. Fionn does what he's supposed to? Great. Door opens, Roos's army strolls on through. Fionn doesn't do what he's supposed to do? Great. Door is still going to eventually open, Roos is still going to stroll on through, it'll just take a few more hours and a few more lost men, but then at least Ramsay gets to go on one of his beloved hunts and either recapture Fionn or chase him into a painful death inside the net. So what does that actually leave for Fionn? Nothing. Just the one option. Success. I will deliver in the castle. I will. I must. So the tension for the chapter is set. Fionn, or what's left of him, has to achieve something and we need to see if he'll succeed. But on top of the actual difficulty of the task itself, which is still to be completely revealed, we get some extras on why this is difficult for Theon specifically. Not just because of the people he's going to be seeing in a moment, but because this specific place and this specific journey is of special importance to him. It's going to reignite old memories and an old persona that he's trying to bury. I even think the throwaway line, the wind was from the south, moist as a kiss, is an indicator of that former life when Theon was obsessed with kisses. Reek definitely does not think of them so often anymore. I have come this way before. No, he said. No, that was some other man. That was before you knew your name. I don't think Ramsay quite has the emotional intelligence to realise what visiting this past actually means to Fionn. There are layers to this. Yes, it is a reminder of what he was, and therefore an emphasis of what he is now, but it's also a reminder of Rob, like we mentioned at the beginning. He rode this way before, next to Rob, in Rob's army, in Rob's war. Rob, who was his brother. Rob, who he betrayed, and in many ways, killed. We'll have to wait until a little later in the book to really gain the strength to think about Rob properly, but we don't need George to tell us how monumentally important this is to Fionn. As much as you might think about Ned and his influences, it is Rob that he cared for and had the strongest link to. It was this action that he feels worst about when you go to get down to it, and what he feels put him in this position. After all, that act of betrayal so long ago was what led to all of this, to the deaths of Rob and the man that was Fionn. So being faced with memories of when they were together, before he'd abandoned them, when they were all right, not happy, but a lot better than now, it all frames what has come since and how it's his fault, ultimately. Again, it's amazing stuff to analyse, and I'm bound to come up short, but I really do like this Rob angle, it's brilliant. As for the reminder of the man he once was, Fionn can't heed his own advice about not thinking about the past. The best he can do is disassociate and tell himself he was never that person, but that can't stop him from making the comparisons. The proud banner of the direwolf versus his peace banner. The good rider he was versus the bad he is now. The strong horse he had versus his weak one. And all of it combines into what we've said already. Ramsay's games are all over this. Here's his quote. He was no rider. He was not even a man. He was Lord Ramsay's creature, lower than a dog, a worm in human skin. You'll pretend to be a prince, Lord Ramsay told him last night, as Reek was soaking in a tub of scalding water. 
but we know the truth. You're reek. You will always be reek, no matter how sweet you smell. Those positives we listed a moment ago are only skin deep. It's make-believe. Even the hygiene, as much as it might mean to him. Beneath them all are the constant reminder that he doesn't truly own them, that they can be taken away with the click of a finger, that he is reek dressed up, not Theon dressed down. And to complete that thought, Ramsay proves what we said before, that this is all just a game that he can't lose. Betray him, don't betray him, but you won't anyway because of what's been done to you before. Ramsay knows how effective he is. Now we move on to setting the general mood of this place. Downtrodden, dreary, bleak, pretty much in keeping with the rest of the book. Theon experiences it by passing physical signs that Rob Stark's war is gone and forgotten, sunken and rotted, just to hit home that idea of his playing a part in that downfall. It doesn't help that he is ultimately headed towards a ruin anyway, so that idea of rack and ruin is going to be pretty present anyway, like it was with Tyrion last week in Foggy Creyane. We also have the presence of these weird black blocks that we like to obsess over, and that obviously helps with this mood. We wondered about them last time we were here, and we haven't really learned anything about them since, but it definitely does add to the awe of this place not really belonging to humans, something else being here before, something you've forgotten. As Theon nears, that feeling of Rob, the war, Moat Canaan itself, and in many ways, the spirit of the North all being broken or failing, increases when he comes across the towers that we last saw through Catelyn's eyes way back when. The leaning drunkard's tower, the bare children's tower, and the still, well, okay-ish gatehouse tower. When we and Theon were last here, there was a great gathering of eager men shouting about the glory they were marching to, the bloody noses they'd give the Lannisters. Remember, at that point, Eddard Stark was still alive. There was still a nobility about this quest, a very upbeat feeling. Theon was definitely among those who just saw it all as a big game. Calim warned about the Knights of Summer and that whole vibe, and now we've seen the truth of it. Look what happened since. Look how few have managed to return to Moat Caelan to see these signs of deterioration. All gone now. All fallen. It was such a thrilling, bright time that Theon can't help but remember for only a second, but now he has to deal with the present instead. The direwolf was gone to be replaced by the kraken. His kraken, but we'll save that note for a moment. For now, he'll focus on these eyes appearing out of the cracks. Like in Tyrion's fog chapter, George relies on the feeling of being watched and monsters in the dark to incite his horror atmosphere. With Tyrion, it was having no idea what could be out in the fog. Here, we've almost got too many candidates. We know, and Theon is sure hoping, that these watchers are the remnants of the Ironborn, but there's also the Cranagh men that have been haunting those Ironborn, and can never be truly seen or protected against. Or is it the lingering spirit of the children of the forest that once claimed this sacred spot? Remember last time we were here, Brendan Tully was joking about these northern ghosts that hate the spirit of Southerners. For Theon specifically, he's likely thinking of the ghosts of this army that he was once part of and who have since died. Theon leaves behind the mystical for the physical as he gives us a reminder on the specifics of the Moat Caelan defence system. This perfect combination of the towers covering each other even in their dilapidated states. I like to think this is included because this may be of importance once more towards the end of the series. Perhaps it will be used as a stopgap of the others to give the south more time even if it is more saleable from the north anyway. Or maybe they'll try and flip this knowledge on its head and use it against the others somehow. Or perhaps it'll be used to protect the north from the south so they can just get on with the big stuff and stop playing their stupid games. That'd be quite good, wouldn't it? Either way, this description we get from Theon, which is very similar to that which we've had before, moves into something we've not had previously, which is a focus on the surrounding geography and how dangerous it is. The land itself wants to suck you up. The flowers that can poison you. Reptiles that are on you before you even know it. This place is a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. No army can cross it, attack it, or defend against it as we're about to see. This is the absolute force of nature that I feel is a kind of legacy left by the children of the forest. Yes, you drove us back and took this place from us, but we've made it nearly completely inhospitable to you, as dangerous for humans as any other place in Westeros. The major difference between humans and the children, and I think a large factor of why humanity is coming up so hard against it now, 
is specifically because of that refusal to honour and respect nature properly, to become one with it as the children were, instead of acting parasitically towards it. Which leads straight onto film thinking on these few humans who did choose to be one with nature, who did respect the ways of the children in these so-called bog devils. Froggies, as we've heard the phrase called them. They are disrespected and abused as any small group normally is, perhaps even one that we can compare to an indigenous people. Certainly, their attitudes towards them are similar, as is their portrayal as protectors of the land. We all recall the tale that Mira once told Bran about a certain member of these people and his adventures in the world of men. Speaking of Mira, Fionn lists off some of the houses of these people, and our hearts all do a little jump when the reeds are mentioned. And there's also a house called Blackmire. Hmm, rhymes with Blackfire. That's 150% coincidence, but your mind notices these things after a few rereads. Anyway, the focus on the Kranach men and their abilities is one of my favourites. Firstly, I adore the way they have taken on the mantle of the children of the forest, and maybe still interact with them as well, and how they defend the land by using the land, as well as how bloody good they are at it. I definitely believe they will be part of the plot going forward, beyond what we're going to see in this chapter. Perhaps they will come up with Lady Stoneheart should she go north, don't forget she's been into the neck as we saw in Feast. Theoretically, they still have Rob's will in there somewhere with Mage Mormon and Hal Mullen, maybe even Ned's bones as well. And what of Howland Reed? We've always spoken about him, the fandom is always theorising and guessing about what he'll do. Will he finally lead his private people out into the spotlight when the final battles are nearing? I've no idea how, but I look forward to seeing how the Kranach men defend their land, their history and deal with invaders as they have here. Fionn begins to see some signs of their victories as he approaches. Men and horses just left to die in the mud and be reclaimed by the earth. We'll see much worse symptoms in a moment, but still, it's quite the welcome. It really is setting a tone. There's more and more each step, each of them looking more and more gruesome. We'll get confirmation soon, but this is our sign the Kranachmen have taken the foolish, arrogant Ironborn to the cleaners. Fionn thinks about these Ironborn now, although not by mourning any of these corpses he's passing. Once he might have remembered these were men sworn to his house. In a way, they were his men by extension at least, but that doesn't even cross his mind right now. He's still busy thinking of what's become of him, how they will never know or recognise him, and conveniently forgetting how much trouble he had earning respect from these types even when he was whole and untortured, and he's just as concerned about his secret injuries, he doesn't want the shame of that being found out. Hence, we finally meet the Ironborn who have been unlucky enough to wind up here, and it's odd that we are finally visiting this scene because this is actually one of the more consistent places in all of A Song of Ice and Fire in terms of sites involved in the war. Remember, the Victorian landed here at the same time that Fionn was coming up with his plan to take Winterfell. How bloody long ago does that seem? That was basically three books ago now, it's an absolute age, and ever since all the way back then, Victorian has plonked all these men down, waged an unwinnable war against nature and human form, stuck by them for half of it and then abandoned them when he thought there was a possibility of a crown, and left them to deal with the results. Can you actually imagine being here for that long? It boggles the mind. Dealing with the problems that they've been dealing with, trying to defend against an enemy you can't even see, let alone kill, all the while the most gruesome of deaths being handed to you should you cut your finger. It is a nightmare, I'm going to say again. And it also reminds you just how long that all these northerners we're going to see later have actually been down in the south, how long they've been away from home. So that's pretty weird to think of, that we've never seen them before after all this time. But now we do see them, we can declare this as Victorian's legacy. Or Balin's legacy, if you like. Two equally stupid men who insisted on throwing thousands of their soldiers into the most painful of hells for a pointless war. This carnage that Fionn walks in on is just representative of the Ironborn in total. They are rubbish. They're just rubbish across the board. They always are. Everything on their island is rubbish, all their attempts on the mainland are rubbish. They're just bland and kind of ultimately pointless. They just kind of fail as a society. That's what makes Euron so interesting as an apparent enigma, but also makes me suspect that he'll give all his men a similar legacy to the one these folk have got eventually. For now, just as Fionn waves his banner and gets rushed inside the walls, we get reminded not only of how bad Ramsay's wrath will be, 
but more importantly, how close these Kranag men always are as they nearly pick him off with their poisoned arrows. Fionn is basically just dragged indoors, as we're shown that the Ironborn know how dangerous their foe is, and then that evidence we saw outside almost seems like a happier time, out of the frying pan and into the fire, I believe they say. It's not the knife at his neck or the threats of instant death that do this, it's the body that has been left indoors that Fionn finds, on the floor and rotting. It is green, it's crawling with maggots, and it's just there with all these guys, it's just there next to them. That's how bad the situation is, that they have maggot-infested bodies surrounding them like other people have furniture. The Kranigman attack is so relentless, so fierce, that there isn't time to deal with the dead properly, so instead we get this constant, inescapable horror reminder of death. It is a heavy, choking atmosphere. Imagine not only being trapped in this ruin of a building for months on end, with certain death waiting for you outside, but you also have to be there watching your best mate waste away, rot away in front of you. Can we have any idea what that must do for morale or to the health of the mind? But anyway, there is a knife at Fionn's throat and he is being asked, who the hell is he and why the hell would we walk in here of all places? I am Ironborn, recounted, lying. So disassociation continues, if that even is the right word for it. It has to be a role, an act. Reek can't actually let it be true in his mind because that would be above his station and worth and therefore inviting cruelty from Ramsay. Remember last time out, when we spoke about him making Fionn an active participant in his own entrapment, this is such a great example of such. He can't even bring himself to say his own name. That is too close, that would shatter his inner illusion. So he settles for what he is, or what he believes he is acting as. It's easier to see it like that. That way he can lean into it and pretend he has some confidence or some prestige, instead of revealing what he truly believes himself to be. And it works, for now, on this guard at least. He accepts the lordship story easy enough. The horse and the clothes and the claim are apparently adequate. And he gives us details somehow even more grim than before. We used to drag the dead down in the cellars. All the vaults are flooded down there. No one wants to take the trouble now, so we just leave them where they fall. Yes, that living situation we described a moment ago is worse than we thought. You can't drink any of the water either. Do so and you'll scream to death. Well, and if you go into any of the lower stories of your house, a snake might get you. Most importantly, the situation is so bad, these men have happily abandoned the idea of the drowned god. That's how dire the situation is. On top of that, we find the Kranag men are so effective in their offensive, they've cut each of these towers off from each other. Remember, it was just a couple of pages ago when we were talking about how they constantly compliment each other? Well, not anymore. There isn't any mingling, there isn't even any communication. We have a commander going over to another tower and finding not only that the grand majority had died, but that the survivors had resorted to cannibalism. Is there anything terrible not happening to these men here? This is just hell on earth, truly. And Mark, you dance bingo cards because that's another cannibalism issue raising its head yet again. And this guard talks about it as if it's just another day. Moat Kalen has fallen, Reek realised then. Only no one has seen fit to tell them. Yeah, and then some, Fionn. Rather than wallow or mourn, Fionn wants to get on with his mission and take him to someone in a leadership position. The guard mentions Kenning, but he doesn't even know if he's alive, let alone has received much direction from him of late. You can see how the entire structure of this company is absolutely shattered, none of it remains at all. And that vision gets even worse when Fionn is shown through to Ralph Kenning and finds another rotting man. In fact, it seems worse than that. It seems he is being put through the most painful, grotesque death imaginable as he slowly wastes away. I guess I'll read it to you at length because that seems like fun, doesn't it? Ralph was rotting too. Beneath the furs he was naked and feverish. His pale puffy flesh covered with weeping sores and scabs. His head was misshapen, one cheek grotesquely swollen, his neck so engorged with blood that it threatened to swallow his face. The arm on that same side was big as a log and crawling with white worms. No one had bathed him or shaved him for many days from the look of him. One eye wept pus, and his beard was crusty with dried vomit. And this, I'll remind you, is all from a graze. An arrow grazed him, and look at him now. This is what happens from just, just a cut from nicking yourself. 
I don't think we can say any more about the danger these people, these Kranigmen, represent or how woefully outmatched the Ironborn are, especially with the kind of leadership they've been left with. Victorian isn't exactly a brains whiz, but these people that are here, they've just been left to collapse in on themselves. Seeing what this Ralph Kenning has become spurs Fionn into decisive action. He should be killed, he declares. He is barely a man anymore, he's obviously not fit for anything. And look at the pain he's in. Do you think he really wants to go on like this? I don't think it's any great revelation or leap of faith from me to detail to you how this is obviously a mirror to Fionn's own situation. Half his wits are gone, he's in pain. How much use is he anymore? These are all his questions. It's an incredibly important moment when Fionn decides to end Ralph's suffering, with so much of his own psyche and self-view wrapped up in the act. And even that idea to ease his passing is met by a disgusting bursting of Ralph's throat and a stink so bad they have to run from the room. Can this place get any worse? Fionn likely thinks it can. He's been with Ramsay after all. At least these men have their sense of selves when they die. He might even consider Ralph Kenning the lucky one. It's that thought of Ramsay that spurs him on. There is a time limit to this task. How disgusting it is, he needs to get on. He needs to find whoever was second. And he finds his target in the hall. But even on entering, he has to contend with memory flashbacks yet again. This time it's of the meeting with Rob and his bannermen, so many of whom are gone now. Rob himself, of course, the Carstarks, Helmand Tallheart, the Great John is still a prisoner. Hold up the side-by-side -side image of those great, powerful men planning their apparently glorious war, and compare it now with a bunch of people that Ironborn consider beneath them in the cods. That really does say something, doesn't it? They lull here, drinking away in the dark. This is not as it was before. And as a quick reminder of exactly what came before, while for Theon it was this meeting of Rob and Bannerman, for us it was the superb scene of Catelyn reuniting with her son, seeing him as a man and a leader for the first time. It's in that scene that Rob first discusses his plan of splitting his forces at the river, that Catelyn makes the fateful decision to not return to Winterfell but head to Riverrun instead. It's that mother and son dynamic between Catelyn and Rob that you know is one of my favourites from how much we covered it back in those books, and this scene is magnificent in the development of the War of the Five Kings plot and of those two characters, so it's pretty special to revisit this specific space. It was a real, real cool time, I like that memory. But in terms of Theon, you'll notice George is being subtle, because the disassociation is breaking down. Reek does not think, that's where the other man sat. He thinks, there was where I sat the last time I was here. It's subtle and quick, but it's important they're slipping through the cracks. And it's so quick, I'm not even sure Fionn realises, because once he is challenged by these men, he is back to focusing on his Ramsay-given name, while his mouth whispers his title as Lord Balan's son again. He still cannot bring himself to say Fionn, because names have been made so important to him, and to speak that name into existence goes against all of Ramsay's rules. The way to work past this impasse is to get on the job. So Fionn gives out the terms that Ramsay is offering. Two problems there. None of them can read, and they are sticking to this ironborn do not surrender motif because of pride and ego and masculine energy that we've seen dominate their culture so much, and in Fionn himself as well. Though it is Fionn who responds, well actually, surrendering is kind of what you're famous for in the mainland, you've just never been exposed to the idea. Fionn explains what the document says for them, and lays out the choice. You can surrender, or you can die here, as you were so obviously doing and in horrific fashion. Yet here it is, that big masculine energy again, as Dagon Cod stands up and asks if that is a threat. He says that he yields to no man, clearly mistaking such a notion for actual bravery instead of the stupidity it is. But Dagon gets a few supporters who insist they are being loyal soldiers by sticking to Victorian's command and holding Moat Kaelin. So there are a few facets at play here. One is that inherent ego and general masculine energy we spoke of a minute ago. Yielding is giving up in some sense, and that means weakness. And I don't want anybody to think I'm weak, because that would be the worst thing ever, so I'm not doing it no matter the circumstances. Another is the fact that though they won't say out loud, they are absolutely being beaten into the ground here. They have no answer. They are screwed. They look like they're playing the Harlem Globetrotters out there. So here comes an opportunity to actually control something, or have the feeling of control anyway. 
We can't beat the Krangman, but we could say no to Fion. We could even kill Fion. We can get a nice feeling of strength and worth again. We can treat it as a little victory, which, you know, they definitely need right now. And the final facet is this one of Victarion and the command he gave. It's not so much a matter of undying loyalty to this single man, as it is that if they abandon this for Victarion returning, then what's it all been for? When you are sat cowering in the dark with your friends noisily dying beside you, wishing you were anywhere else in the world, you need to rationalise what you are doing. You have to make it worth something. So some of these men are latching onto the order. We are going to go through this hell because we are loyal and brave soldiers, obeying commands and helping the war effort. It's the for king and country thing of the trenches. Not all of them might take this approach, but a fair few do. So the idea of Victarion not coming back, or even the idea of just walking away and giving up, is tough because if you can do that, then why have you put up with this for so long? Why have all these men died? Why have you been walking through hell? Theon very nearly topples into his own worries of what Ramsay will do if he fails. Instead, he identifies what the mentality of these men is and attacks it by dropping some truth bombs about Victarion. My uncle is never coming back, Reed told them. The kings would crown his brother Euron, and the crow's eyes other wars to fight. You think my uncle values you? He doesn't. You are the ones he left behind to die. He scraped you off the same way he scraped mud off his boots when he waded ashore. Those words struck home. You could see it in their eyes, in the way they looked at one another or frowned above their cups. They all feared they'd been abandoned, but it took me to turn fear into certainty. We know he is absolutely dead on here. It might have been once that Victorian intended to return to Moat Kaelin, but even then, it's because he couldn't handle being defeated by the Cranagmen, whom he believes to be the opposite of good warriors. It was never about coming back and saving these poor souls. And since the king's moot, he's not thought of them anyway. He's half a world away now, dreaming of Daenerys. And Euron, their king they know nothing about, is half a continent away himself, waging a new war on the south. Nobody cares about the north, or these men, or what they are going through. They are forgotten and abandoned. This hellish ordeal and these horrible deaths mean nothing. The confirmation of that must be as hard-hitting as it gets. I suppose you can react in two ways, as Dagon is here with anger and lashing out, or as more and more I begin to listen to Theon and realising that they might at least finally get to leave. Of course, the ultimate irony is that Theon knows they are doomed anyway. He knows what Ramsay is like, what his justice or mercy would appear as, and it's strikingly similar to Joffrey's opinion as it happens. But Theon still does a miraculous job of staying confident. Considering how broken he's become, not missing a beat and talking strong, even in the face of a drawn sword, and knowing how to tempt them with tales of food and comfort, or the threat of the Cranagmen, is absolutely miraculous. So the question is, is this a sign of inner strength from him, or is it a sign of how strong his fear of Ramsay is, that this situation seems easy by comparison? Whatever motivation is pushing Dayon Cod, the man has had enough. He desperately wants a fight. After dealing with smoke and mirrors for so long, how good would it feel just to fight a man like they are supposed to? Unfortunately, he never gets the chance as a throwing axe appears in his skull. The rest of the men still have enough life in them to click that Dagon was about to screw up their only chance of salvation. So that rotting structure we spoke about earlier is shown loud and clear here, as Dagon Cod is removed from his position because the rest of the men will do anything to be out of this place, which is certainly understandable. We knew he had won. He almost felt a man again. Lord Ramsay will be pleased with me. What it all means is that Fionn is allowed a victory for once, so much so he very nearly feels human again, before completely compounding that with qualifying it as still serving Ramsay. He even gets to take down the Kraken banner himself, and I think we can all see the symbolism in that one, can't we? So, as he did once before, Fionn leads a force of Ironborn into the north. Only 63 of them, but as Fionn reminds us, they probably would have taken 150 of Ramsay's number had this come to blows. And why waste good men when you can just gamble on a smelly reek? As Fionn gains some confidence and a job well done, we see that Ironborn are so happy to be out of there, they don't even blink at being asked to completely disarm. The eagle-wide would be worried a bit on this point, I think we agree. They are lucky enough to avoid the Cranagmen on the way back to Ramsay's camp, and upon arrival, we get enough of these quick glimpses of Reek giving in to who he really is. We are Ironborn, he thought with a sudden flash of pride. 
and for half a heartbeat he was a prince again, Lord Balin's son, the blood of Pike. That's his victory, his bravery, his leading of men talking. He's not useless, he just did something of note. There are men who listen to him, but Ramsay's mental walls are so high, he immediately retreats behind them. Don't even dare to think of such a thing. Quickly, re-establish your name as Reek and nothing else. Quickly, protect yourself. Phil moves further into the camp until he comes upon the man himself, Ramsay, and we likely all feel sick at his fake politeness and at the gratitude that these captured Iron Men are showing. Uh, yeah, we don't like it. Considering where they've just been, they would likely be ready to proclaim Ramsay a saint, which makes it all the tougher for the rereader. Once the Ironborn are gone, Ramsay decides he wants some fun with Theon. He wants to beat him down again, make sure those walls hold fast. It begins easy enough, just laughing at the idea that anyone would talk to Theon, let alone still consider him a prince. But then there's this offer of reward, being let go and allowed to go home. Luckily, Theon is too smart for that. A cold knife scraped along his spine. Be careful, he told himself. Be very, very careful. He did not like his lordship's smile, the way his eyes were shining, the spittle glistening at the corner of his mouth. He had seen such signs before. You are no prince. You're reek. Just reek. It rhymes with freak. Give him the answer that he wants. Ramsay really, the image of him there is just of a madman, isn't it? It's just someone insane. As we've said a bunch of times before, Ramsay ensures Fionn takes an active participation in his own torture. He has to be made out as choosing to stay with Ramsay, of telling himself that he wants it. You can almost see that Ramsay wants Fionn to say the wrong thing just so he can have some fun. Though from that quote, we can see a little bit of the wall crumbling. Fionn actively knows he is saying these things to make Ramsay happy, not that they are 100% true. So only a little hint, but it is something. For his correct answers and his success with the Ironborn, Fionn is allowed to move up one single step on the social ladder, from dungeon rat to kept dog. You could argue this is actually much worse and more dehumanising, but Fionn has little time for such worries anymore. This new possession gets him out in the sunlight, with food if he can fight for it. Yes, the message is still very clear, he is beneath all the other humans, but still, it's better than before in his eyes. He's even allowed to get as drunk as he likes. At first, we might think this is just a form of escapism, until we realise what is going on elsewhere. I have two quotes for you. The first, somewhere in the night, men were screaming. And then we have one from the next morning. Along the rotting plank road, wooden stakes were driven deep into the boggy ground. There the corpses festered, red and dripping. Sixty-three, he knew. There are sixty-three of them. One was short, half an arm. So there is that irony of the chapter again, of Fionn's apparent strength early on. He knew that as nice as it was to play dress-up and be listened to and obeyed, that sense of self he briefly had as he led them back, or that quick glimpse of pride he felt of being ironborn, was all done in the knowledge he was betraying them completely, his own people. There's a reason he thought of Ralph Canning and Dagon Cod as the lucky ones. Because he, Fionn, their prince, took them out of hell and delivered them to the devil instead. So when you realise that's why George had us listen to this one-armed man talking about his family, or this whole idea of them being so happy and thankful to be led out of that terrible place, it is really just to make us feel awful about what happened to these men. Yes, we're feeling bad for Ironborn. George really is capable of anything, isn't he? If he can do it for the individual and Fionn, he can do it for the group as well. <laughs> what a terrible, awful chapter this truly is. So what can we do to improve it? Oh, I know. Let's reintroduce one of the biggest villains of the story, and his treacherous best buds as Roose Bolton and the phrase finally re-enter the North, just to pair this brilliantly with last week's Davos chapter. A superb chapter sequencing, yet again, no surprise. Aenys and Hostian Frey are highlighted, and we all get to hate the idea of yet more Freys befouling our beloved North. But Fionn keeps up his theme of comparing current times with the old, as he realises how few of the Northmen are returning from that great force that he once rode with, and the great majority of Bolton men anyway, so Roose certainly did know what he was doing in Storm. As this army crosses over into the North, again giving us tension for what we've seen in Davos and Jon's recent chapters, we have this little add-on of Roose reminding us of his caution and smarts when he has someone else dress up as him just in case any Cranach men decide to take a pop. And even if he did, 
It's double as superbly armoured anyway. You just can't be too cautious, apparently. Imagine being the guy offered that job, though. Doesn't seem like there's a polite way to turn it down. Do you want to pretend to be me? Well, no, not really. Well, why not? Well, yeah, that's a good point. It's brilliant for reminding us of who Rose is and how he thinks. Fionn notes that he has no scars at the moment, and that's because he never puts himself in danger, does he? We know that from his past. As Fionn continues with giving us another physical description of Roos, yet again focusing on those icy eyes, which gives us a lot to wonder about for the future, he again keeps up with the idea of comparison and times gone by, as he remembers how he used to act towards this guy. Once, a boy called Fionn Greyjoy had enjoyed tweaking Bolton as they sat at council with Rob Stark, mocking his soft voice and making japes about leeches. He must have been mad. This is no man to jape with. It's as striking a difference as any in this chapter, to be honest. Fionn's worldview has changed immeasurably since the last time he saw Roos, and only now does he see the reality of what he's dealing with, and what we as readers are clearly going to have to face in this growing war for the North. To end the chapter, we have two more final introductions. First is Lady Waldefrey, who will remember married Roos back in Storm, but then there is another, one that Fionn is also supposed to remember, along with so much else in this chapter. Dark brown hair fell halfway down her back, and her eyes, that is not Lord Eddard's daughter. I had her father's eyes, the grey eyes of the Starks. A girl her age might let her hair grow long, add inches to her height, and see her chest fill out, but she could not change the colour of her eyes. That's Sansa's little friend, the steward's girl. Jane, that was her name. Jane Poole. It's the focus on the eyes yet again. George knows how to keep these themes tight, doesn't he? We've just had a whole chapter about a force of men being taken from one horrible place right into the hands of another, and the exact same is happening with our beloved Jane Poole. This poor girl, this ultimate casualty of the series, is supposed to be finally returning home so she can escape from the misery. Instead, she's heading for what might be her worst experience yet, which is saying something. And I won't comment too much on the plight of Jane Poole here at her reintroduction, because we're already at the end of the chapter, and I'll double it in length if you let me. But there is plenty to come, so I'll have a lot of time to talk about how much I care about this character and how we should all care. But suffice to say, the tension is set. Not just because we know of what awaits her in Ramsay, but because Fionn knows the secret. His past is hitting him straight in the face, as there's no avoiding it. And a chapter about guilt of his actions is now going to continue as he enables what happens to Jane in the future. So will he ever be able to make up for that or do something about it? Well, hence the future of his story, of which this chapter is mirrored throughout. You'll be hard-pressed to find a chapter quite as grim as that one, and I say that in the middle of A Dance with Dragons, just bear in mind. Let's move on to our second now, let's move on to John 5. And we're sticking in the north as we come to what is probably one of the more forgotten chapters of John's dance arc, which is a real shame because it involves what I consider to be one of the very best John moments ever. To look at the overall of this chapter, I can see why it might fade if we were only reading roundups or something like that, and it was also the shortest John chapter of the book, and the fourth shortest overall, so that'll contribute to that feeling of not as much happening. We definitely don't have all the dozens of notes and offshoots that we did in John 4, but we do have John getting on with his job, him making a huge step in terms of dragging the Night's Watch into a new era, and most importantly, him finding some time to focus on the actual task of prepping the wall for the others instead of just dealing with Stannis all the time. This chapter is an exploration of what the Wildlings have come to, the new relationship between them and the Night's Watch, consequences of what Stannis has tried, and most of all it is continuing this highlighting of Jon's brilliance that, again, we saw a lot of in Jon 4. Specifically, this underrated event is one of the very best at showing off Jon as a leader of humankind and as the man to get the job done. It's short, but it's damn sweet. We've got the build-up of problems from before, we've got new problems, we've got tension throughout. I like it a lot. Let's dive straight in, shall we? And what might be a really odd piece of foreshadowing for what Kevin Lannister will find in the epilogue, we open on John with his head on a desk in a pool of wax, overcome by the admin side of the job. I don't think John would ever have listed this side of things as one of his strengths, 
but as Lord Commander, it's unavoidable now. He just has to get on with it. Last week, we had inventory time for the food. Now it's bookkeeping and organising and recording and all these other million small tasks that never seem to stay away or diminish. Oh, what we could really do with is an assistant who'd relish this kind of work. Someone like Samuel Tarley, perhaps. Unfortunately, we've spent enough time musing on how much such a decision might have benefited both Sam and John, so we already get some early alas alarms here. John likes to think that Sam will eventually be back to take care of this stuff, although he's really not lending credit to how long that would actually take, but he is feeling some guilt over reports of autumn storms that might have affected Sam and the others. As readers of Feast, we know full well that said storms did hit the Blackbird, and that it wasn't a nice time for any of them on board, but that they ultimately survived. So much as we might want to soothe John's guilt here, there is some kindred mirroring of John feeling bad about the decision at the same time that Sam begins questioning the motives of such a decision while out on the sea. And there is the unfortunate caveat that John is right in one respect. One of those he sent out is headed speedily to his grave in Maester Eamon. Well, two if you count Darien, but that's his own fault. The most important information we get early on is that Stannis has indeed left Castle Black. The deal that was struck with John last week has been honoured and we've just taken a very big step forward in this northern war. We're always discussing now that Stannis is out there in the field, he's doing something, something is happening. Even if it'll be a long time until we have a camera back on him when we're reintroduced to Asher Greyjoy. Though we aren't given specifics just yet on how many men Stannis took with him, we know it to be the majority as Castle Black has re-entered a state of being something we're much more used to. After being at its fullest ever since the end of Storm, the place now seems empty and forlorn a bit. All those injuries from the battles of the Wildlings are that much more obvious, and there's a strange tension in the air as they wait for what will happen next, because something is always bound to happen next in this place. We'd all best keep our shields up. That's what John thinks when he hears that Iron Emma is at least keeping the training yard proactive. That's effective as a tension-setting device, just as it is good advice that John should really take on board himself. We also have this note of John choosing not to move into the King's Tower and its Lord Commander apartments, despite the fact that Stannis is now gone, and there's several reasons for that. One, he doesn't want anyone to think that he sees himself as a king, even though it'd be perfectly acceptable to move in there, because that's where the Lord Commanders always stay. But then again, most Lord Commanders aren't called traitor or wildling, or are connected to this huge kingdom-spanning war that's happening a couple of miles down the road. John does not want anyone to think that he's trying to connect himself with that, or that he thinks himself as higher than others, or as anything other than a brother of the Night's Watch. He wants to be seen as humble and not embroiled in the trappings of power, although as we'll discuss later with Melisandre, those trappings sometimes do have their uses. On top of that, moving in the next day would suggest that there's little confidence that Stannis will be returning. Even if basic logic says that it will be ages before he comes back and the space should be used properly, it's some kind of stiff lip optics that most people care about. To be honest, most of the crows probably would welcome this move by John and this suggestion that they had done with Stannis, Bo and Marsh for example, having put forward the idea in the first place, but it's not only crows left there, is it? And besides, it will only incite rumours of being a turncloak or doing Stannis false by the pockets of black brothers that already don't like John. And finally, staying in the rooms of Donald Noy here in the armoury is a way of honouring the best mentor he ever had, but also keeping him focused on the job at hand. He doesn't need all the frills and trappings, he wants to keep it basic and focused. And we can admire how much John wants to emulate the old smith anyway. It's good stuff. John gets up and begins yet another day of duty, allowing himself that small boon of stopping by the yard for a bit of coaching and game advice. We know how much better that suits him than book sorting. And George uses the opportunity to subtly tell us that John is going somewhere that could be dangerous, so we get interested in that, especially in the note that Longclaw is going. We get confirmation of there being a trip almost immediately as John heads to the stables, and we're told a bunch of wains have been set up and Bone Marsh is getting more and more annoyed as he counts them. The initial interaction between the Lord Commander and his Lord Steward is quite telling. Not only for what is coming, as John indicates that this is about his plan to man the castles of the wall so that he can focus again on that now that Stannis has rode away and taken his wall talk with him, but also for how their relationship is progressing. Marsh pursed his lips. Lord Commander Mormon, 
is dead, John said, and not a wildling hands, but the hands of his own sworn brothers, men he trusted. Neither you nor I can know what he would or would not have done in my place. John wheeled his horse around. Enough talk. Away. Clearly, John is getting less and less patient with Bowen's continual moaning at everything he does, and Bowen is getting more and more annoyed that he's not being listened to. Although, I will say, bringing up Dior Mormon is a poor strategy in my opinion. Firstly, that guy did almost nothing for the watch except that it grows sloppy, and that was with infinitely more men, resources, and time than John. So whatever he would have done is completely irrelevant. Besides, John did care about the old bear and likely internally compares himself to him all the time already. John doesn't bring it up very much, but I think it likely bothers him that he wasn't there to defend Dior when the mutiny came. This isn't the show, he wasn't able to go and avenge him. He hasn't been able to do anything about it, he's been so busy. I think that's why he snaps and it can come off as those being harsh about Gio, even when he's not really, it's the opposite. He also brings up this mutiny that killed him and in some strange way he might have even planted the seed that will later come to bear murderous fruit in Bowen's mind. Certainly, that's what Ed Tillett seems to be thinking when he warns of pushing Bowen too far. The man is not a warrior by any stretch but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. It's another testament to foreshadowing and to the wisdom of Dolores Ed that should be listened to much more. Bowen's words seem to have at least one effect. Force nostalgia as John remembers those who came before him and went too early. The Night's Watch has lost too many of its best men, John reflected, as the wagons began to move. The old bear, Corin Halfhand, Don Noy, Jarman Buckwell, my uncle. And there's even more we could list if we wanted to. John also thinks of Eamon, and he wasn't even there for the bravery of Florence Smallwood at the Fist of the First Men, for example, but we were. It does get you thinking how different things could be if just a few of them had survived and were still around to help him although their survival would also massively lower the chances of John being Lord Commander in the first place. Besides, in a roundabout way, many of these men aren't there specifically because of the decisions of Geo Mormon. John has uninspiring and unqualified men left behind, in some cases anyway, but he has to do the best with what he's got. So on our way we go, as we start to work out where we're going. Molestown, likely to distribute food. So that's a nice connection to the start of John's previous chapter. And speaking of chapter sequencing, we also have another connection, the Fion chapter we've just covered, when this group moves south along the King's Road, and sees a trysted tree named the Drunkard. You'll recall the Drunkard's Tower that Fionn just noted before Mo Kalen. But why are they looking at it? That's because it has a new addition. The Drunkard was an ash tree, twisted sideways by centuries of wind, and now it had a face, a solemn mouth, a broken branch or a nose, two eyes carved deep into the trunk gazing north up the King's Road, toward the castle and the wall. The wildlings brought their gods with them after all. There are two more instances that John and his men pass on the way south, with the third being noted as especially angry, its message red and clear, and all of them looking towards Castle Black and the Wall. So I think that's probably intended to be quite threatening towards the Night's Watch, isn't it? We spoke a lot about how hollow Stannis' production towards the Wildlings was after the burning of Mance, and John thinks of Melisandre's part in it too. The forced oaths and forced acceptance of R'hllor was brittle from the beginning, and now we get the proof of that. As soon as the back is turned, it's right back to the old gods, to the surprise of no one. These gods have lasted an unimaginable number of years. They're not going to be turned aside from one afternoon with Stannis. And like the southerners, who were willing to jump ship as soon as they saw any advantage to it, the wildlings will keep their true selves in their soul, just as John predicted before. It means too much to them. And as John reflects on, with previous lessons from Mance, about the nature of the free folk, and how kicking them into moving can often result in violence. Neither shadow cats nor stones would like to give up the gods they'd worshipped all their lives to bow down to one they hardly knew. John is showing off his wisdom for his last chapter all over again, and links in well with his other concern about the appearance of these faces. Firstly, the security of Molestown is apparently lax enough to let it happen three separate times, and that could indicate a much larger breach as possible. So he's left with a choice of risking that, or dedicating more men here instead of the wall. But the larger worry is that if the wildlings are willing to go back on one part of the agreement, in terms of who they worship, they might do so on another, like their promise to keep the peace. And before they know it, 
John and the Night's Watch could be fighting against those who swore they'd be friends in the direction that they are most vulnerable from. But the wildlings only swore with a sore point at their hearts. They aren't idiots. If it's a choice of death or lying for a few days, they're going to choose the latter. Now the few days have passed, they're becoming more brazen, and John has just lost a large component in his ability to control them in Stannis' numbers. The tension is building for what we might find at Molestown, as well as what Melisandre might do when she hears about this insult to a red god. It's just another plate that John has to keep spinning somehow. It's best we get there straight away then, isn't it? It's been a little while since we've actually visited Molestown. The last time was when John was tearing through on his way to Castle Black to warn them of wild things coming from the south, all while he had a few arrows in him. Since then, those same wild things have burned almost all of the topside village away, but the true village remains buried underground, just like Castle Black and its wormways. It's from here the wildlings emerge, and there's some focus given to their smell initially, so we get some more chapter sequencing in our previous conversation about hygiene and dignity. The free folk are not a vain people in the same way the southerners are, but they are still proud, and more specifically, are used to being free to roam the land and make it their own. Now they are jammed into tunnels, and have really just swapped one crowded pen for another. There is that aura of lost dignity about it, of unfairness. It's a necessity right now, John knows that, but it still isn't much fun. Luckily, at least John has some wisdom about the whole affair, as opposed to his men. Pig ignorance, John thought. The free folk were no different than the men of the Night's Watch. Some were clean, some dirty, but most were clean at times, and dirty at other times. This all adds up to something else that is pushing the wildlings, making us and John wonder just how far they can be pushed before Mance's warnings come true. That feeling becomes even sharper when John realises how many of their young died in Stannis' stockades, deaths that were presumably preventable. With that in mind, John takes stock of those who could be dangerous as fighters. He knows just how vicious these people can be when they take on that shadow cat personality. He reckons there could be just short of 400 fighters once the formidable spearwise are included, those that he could have let go off the Stannis instead of dealing with himself. And he notes some specifics like Halleck, Harmer's brother, or the Hornfoot men, or the Fens. Just as he thought of a moment ago in terms of free folk being clean and some dirty, John reflects on advice from Fowl that they have the same diversity in terms of their morality. Good men and bad, heroes and villains, men of honour, liars, cravens and brutes. We have plenty, as do you. It seems to be a specific evidence to give some depth to the wildlings as a people, to make sure they aren't just given this blanket personality or fall into the noble savage trope. Of course, we as readers hardly need the reminder. We've seen a great cross-section of their different kinds of people across the books, but John's men, they might need some education. And maybe John himself now, as he tries to deal with them as a whole, instead of the many, many individuals that they are. The Night's Watch gets on with what it's there to do and starts handing out food. As we could have all guessed, it doesn't take too long for things to start going wrong. These are all humans here, on both sides, and this is human nature, or an unfortunate side of it at least. It starts simply enough. A woman wants more than what is being offered. Not a lot, in the grand scale of things. She's originally asking for two apples and two onions, but then says, okay, it's fine, just give me two apples, that's all I want. That's not a lot to ask of the universe, is it? Just two apples. Think how little that means to us. But there aren't two apples going spare. We remember Bowen Marsh's woeful tidings back in the storerooms, and that was before John kept these wildings here instead of letting them go off with Stannis. We know the situation and how dire it is, so it was left to John to play the bad guy and say, no, you may not have this measly apple. Publicly, that's a bad look. It's going to earn him scorn. We know it's actually a life-saving measure. Give out all the apples now, and you might as well just draw Longclaw at the same time and start swiping, because starvation will soon come and kill them anyway. These are the hard decisions that are part of ruling, and if there's a stronger theme to come out of Dance, with both John and Danny, then I'm not sure what it is. This idea of having to make the tough calls, the tough choices, of the cost of leadership and responsibility. I think we've spoken about that probably enough. It's even harder considering the woman is asking for an apparently sick son. He needs an apple, she says. Perhaps the easy choice would be to be cynical and say no, she's lying, she's making up a son, does she, she can have this extra apple? Hungry people are capable of much worse? Although, 
considering how penned up they are, I'm pretty sure this would be sussed out by fellow wildlings and not be well received, but either way, John is not likely to think that way. He probably believes this woman is hungry, has a sick child, and is asking for just one extra apple of all things, but he still has to bear the burden of having to say no, even taking all that on board. From there, things go from bad to worst when other hungry people behind the woman act out in their own way, this time with anger, resulting in the precious few food items that this hungry woman has being spilled out onto the ground and utterly wasted as she's pushed down. For all we know, this might condemn her child to death. We just spoke about how many of the young were perishing. To see her not even reacting to the push and instead scrabbling around in the dirt for whatever food she can salvage really does hurt our heart. This is the ugliest side of society and mob thinking. In our world, we most often see it at specific shopping events and the peak stupidity of those idiots. In our current lockdown climate, you might get similar in the morons who are going and stockpiling whatever they can get their hands on. Now, at least that's about food, and it's an important issue, but those people aren't starving. These wildlings are, and that's after having their entire world basically wiped out. So you can really understand why this reaction is happening so fast. And it only has to happen once before more pick it up. Yeah, I'm damn hungry too, and if someone is shouting for food, I need to shout louder. I've got kids as well. I need to push harder, I need to be angrier. So swords are drawn, arrows are being knocked, and I don't think I need to tell you how very easily this could descend into a bloodbath. Luckily, it is Jon Snow who leads here today. If he'd let Burn Marsh come down on his own, there's no doubt in my mind that Molestown would have been painted red within minutes. But Jon is wise, Jon is quick, and he reacts. As I mentioned at the top, it's a shame this chapter is one of the more forgettable, because to me, it really does have the very best instances of leadership in his whole arc. If you want evidence of Jon Snow as a king, look no further. No, it isn't leading men into battle, or even facing down Stannis across the negotiation table. What it is, is knowing people, saving people, and making sure said people's lives are not wasted down here, helping no one. Jon avoids a slaughter, persuades and recruits, and might even change some minds about people on the other side, which is infinitely harder than winning any battle. He starts off with the basic, we're giving you as much food as we can spare. Halleck contends that the crows eat more than them, to which John almost huffs, <laughs> yeah, but huh, it's our food and we're using it to protect you. But I'll let him say it best, here's the quote. We hold the wall, the wall protects the realm, and you now. You know the foe we face, you know what's coming down on us. Some of you have faced them before, whites and white walkers, dead things with blue eyes and black hands. I've seen them too, fought them, sent one to hell. They kill, then they send your dead against you. The giants were not able to stand against them, nor you fens, the ice river clans, the hornfoots, the free folks. And as the days grow shorter and the nights colder, they are growing stronger. You left your homes and came south in your hundreds and your thousands. Why? But to escape them. To be safe. Well, it's the wall that keeps you safe. It's us that keeps you safe. The black crows you despise. That's a great line, I like that one. It's really interesting to see John take a stand on his style of governance and people management. Those who earn the most food will get the most food. I'm sure there are clearer ways and better terminology I could use and lots of real-world comparisons to actual styles of government, but I'm not really qualified to do that, so I'll save myself some embarrassment and keep it simple. There's a strong argument that we need food more than you right now, and us having it works in your benefit anyway, but it requires an incredible leap of faith on the Wildlings' part. They likely think the Night's Watch are feasting every night and throwing the free folk scraps whenever they can be bothered. We know the truth, that the crows are nearly in just as bad a spot, but it's probably best to keep that bit secret for now. The cleverest part of John's argument is, hey, this is all in aid of what you came here for. It wasn't us who rounded you up and brought you south. You did that for a reason. This ultra-killing force that we can't stop and that's growing stronger, and we're protecting you from them. You wanted behind the wall? Well, now you're here, and this is the reality. But John is even smarter than that when he offers an out. You want more food? asked John. The food's for fighters. Help us hold the wall, and you'll eat as well as any crow. It's the first real choice these people have been offered for a while. Stannis wasn't actually offering a choice, was he? And though there are elements of a theoretical sword still being pointed at them, 
It's not really the same thing. John will still feed them even if they turn him down to the very best of his ability, but again, that requires trust as well. It's a difficult concept to work their heads around. As the chapter has already taken pains to show, the wildlings are the same as the Watch. So the idea of teaming up is as bad for them as it is for Bowen and the others. These are our enemies. We've fought against you forever. Our captors we can wrap our heads around, but allies? Mm, that's something different. Remember, half these people fought against each other for most of their lives until Mance came around. Now they're expected to make friends with those that beat them, killed them, imprisoned them, and helped burn their leader and stop their religion. And that's without thinking about their considerable pride, which shows when Sigorn, son of Stir, suggests, why fight you when we could just try and kill you? So John shows his wisdom again when thinking of how he'd feel if someone was asking him to do this with Lannisters, which they essentially were back with that letter in his early chapters. But the wildlings are building off each other again and the tumult is rising, so John needs to reach another level. And this is where he hits his kingship mark, his leadership mark. If John were ever to be named a king, this is one of those instances that historians would look back on and praise as the building blocks of a legend. Again, I'll let him say it best. Hal, what was it you told this woman? Hal looked confused. About the food, you mean? An apple or an onion, that's all I said. They got to pick. You have to pick, John repeated. All of you. No one is asking you to take our vows, and I do not care what gods you worshipped. My own gods are the Ots, the gods of the north, but you can keep the red god, or the seven, or any other god who hears your prayers. It's spears we need, bows, eyes along the wall. It's honestly one of my favourite lines in the book. You have to pick. John isn't saying do this, or do that, and do it this way, or else. He isn't trying to reduce who they are as people. He's actually showing them a great level of respect. And more importantly, he is bothered about the bottom line. The one that almost everyone forgets in their hubris or distraction about smaller things. We need people for the wall, for the true enemy. I don't care what gets you there, or who you worship, or whatever, but I need you there. It is such an infinitely better approach than Stannis had, and one the wildlings will find it much easier to respect, because he's also offering a purpose. They currently spend their days hiding down beneath the ground, and as we've covered, they are a proud people. They can man the wall even better than the crows with half a chance, you can imagine them saying. It's also a far, far better deal than Stannis or anyone else was going to offer, as John describes again here, more quotes for you. I will never ask you to kneel to me, but I will set captains over you, and sergeants who will tell you when to rise and when to sleep, where to eat, when to drink, what to wear, when to draw your swords and loose your arrows. The men of the Night's Watch serve for life. I will not ask that of you, but so long as you are on the wall, you will be under my command. Disobey an order, and I'll have your head off. Ask my brothers if I won't. They've seen me do it. And in the second quote, the choice is yours, Jon Snow told them. Those who want to help us hold the wall, return to Castle Black with me and I'll see you armed and fed. The rest of you, get your turnips and your onions and crawl back inside your holes. It comes down to respect again. You can be your own person, but you'll do what's needed or you'll experience the consequences. And you have to damn love that inclusion of Janos Slint's execution. Finally, the human slime is being put to good use. Add in just that little hint of shaming them at the end, and I again contend how wonderfully intelligent John is in these matters. He plays this absolutely perfectly, comes down to offer apples and onions, and instead gains a new force of recruits because he knows how to balance it. That little bit of shaming, that giving of purpose, yet still the hard set line of rules. You're coming, it's our way and nothing else. I'm being up front of you, I'm being straight laying it on the table, this is the situation. There's tension before that though. This could all go wrong, with them either turning their backs or still becoming more violent. But then there's this ISI's girl who crosses the gap first. And then a man who agrees. The others are worse, that's what we came for in the first place. And then there's another who thinks the same. And another. Until Halek agrees and makes the same statement. It was never about loving who you were working with, it was about staying alive. And if not liking your leader, then respecting them at least. Now that the big name has come, so do many others. And John again remembers wise words from Mance. They won't dance for coins. They don't care how you style yourself, or what that chain of office means, or who your grandsire was. They follow strength. They follow the man. 
Fuck yeah, they do. And Jon Snow is one hell of a man. One ego boost for this guy, and it's sorely needed in his recent chapters. I love that George serves this up on a plate for us. John played it exactly right, like I said. He allows them enough to be respected while appearing strong enough to follow. This is absolute precision. I don't think anyone else on the wall, anyone else in the story probably, could have achieved. I said this chapter was a perfect example of John the King or John the Commander, and that line there sums it up brilliantly. In this time of crisis, this is the man that humanity needs. So 63 wildlings sign up for service in the end. And it's odd that this is the specific number used, given that's what Fionn just dealt with in the number of Ironborn he got. So more chapter sequencing. The only downside is no fens. They are a bit different from the rest and a different pride rules them, but you can't win them all. John traded fruit for soldiers, so we can't complain. Though Burnmarsh gives it a good go as he ponders on the many problems this could present. Women tempting the men, to which I love John's reply that if our men are stupid enough to try it, they deserve the punishment the spearwives give them. But what about more mouths to feed, or the temptation of helping a wilding army should one show up? Come on, Bowen, read the room. This is a win, don't harsh our vibes. But they are good points. We and John know, and John has scarce answers right now. But let's just take everything we get, which is more than we had this morning, and then cross our fingers. I'm doing the best I can, and it's a boatload better than any of the rest of you. So there ends a short chapter, a straightforward one that, like I say, will kind of fade into memory quite quickly. But it's a monumental chapter, a monumental moment, in terms of John's development as a man and a leader, and it's one I truly adore. Those wild things being there on the wall, they are going to matter later on, even if we forget this specific chapter. I just like how much we're building up John in these early chapters. Like last time, that was a great one, proving how brilliant he was. I think it's the exact same here. So well done, John Fine, for keeping that streak going. So if George had planned to give us a fairly straightforward, simple chapter, a short one there, well, I think it was in preparation for quite the opposite in what we have next as we head into Tyrion 6. Yes, this is not short, nor is it simple. This is one of the longer chapters of the book, and it's definitely one fit to burst with different content and different storylines, important storylines, tough storylines. This really is, I think it's fair to say, one of the most important chapters in the book and the series, if I'm being quite honest. From top to bottom, there's just no stopping in this one. We cover a lot. There's so much so that I'm not really going to spend a lot of time introducing it because we have a lot to talk about. But I will say it's kind of two spectrums that we get to see of Tyrion here. Two different spectrums and two different ends to those two different spectrums, if you get me. We'll get to see Tyrion. We'll get to see Tyrion on his highest of the political scheming scale. We'll see those abilities come right back, bubbling to the top. He can't ignore him. He's really going full steam with that. But on the other personal scale, personal spectrum, we'll see him at his absolute lowest. And there's a much more in between as well. Because this is where we have Tyrion entering yet another section of his journey. We've spoken before about how Tyrion's dance journey can really get split up into a lot of different parts. And here is the next doorway he goes through. Here is the end of one and the beginning of another. So important just for that alone. He's kind of like the inverse of Danny and John. For this trio, this Triforce that we like to call them, it's normally the other way round. It's Danny and John that have the segments, the journey. Think of Clash and Storm, Storm especially, where John had multiple segments of being with the Wildlings, and then making for Castle Black, and then the war against Mance, and then Stannis turning up and everything like that. Same for Daenerys, where she levelled up against Astapor, and then Yunkai, and then Marine. Whereas Tyrion, for Storm and Clash, was in one place. He was stationary. Even if he got a lot done, he was in the one single place. His storyline was constant. Well, that's what Danny and John have now. Danny's a marine, mostly. John is at Castle Black, mostly. They're stationary ones. So we've got this little flip of the three here. I find that quite interesting. Anyway, we'd best get to it because, like I say, this is a hugely influential chapter. This is going to change everything, as far as we know. It's one of the biggest chapters for that. It's got a lot of hard-hitting emotion. I warn you now. It's got some very, very difficult analysis that I've not been looking forward to. And, well, I think we should probably just 
start because like I say there is a lot when I first wrote this it was 13,000 words so yeah let's get going shall we well we start with unfortunately that huge cliffhanger that definitely definitely fooled us all we really did think Tyrion was going to die five chapters into his arc yeah all right and just a quarter of the way through the book well that's been dismissed in just the three chapters since Tyrion's last and how long does it take George just a single paragraph. Well, you really had us going there, you really did. Although in fairness, I suppose we shouldn't mock. This is the same man who killed off Rob and Catelyn, not far past the halfway point of Storm of Swords, so he is capable of anything, but I think we knew that falling off a boat would not mean the end for Tyrion this time round. But at the very beginning, Tyrion does think he's died, he thinks he's dreaming, and yet he still keeps his mind on his father, just like when he's alive. Even in death, Tyrion can't escape him, apparently. He dreams that Tyrion is the Shrouded Lord, and for all we know, perhaps a lot of those daddy issues would have been confronted in the much-talked-about, but unfortunately cut, scene between Tyrion and the Lord. Perhaps there would have been this grey kiss they dreams about from whoever, or whatever it was, like some stony dementor, but here we can begin to move past the idea, because Tyrion didn't meet him, he didn't get kissed, and he didn't die as he awakes on the Shy Maid. As Tyrion himself has to confirm, he is alive. So is the crew, by the looks of things, as Howden tells Tyrion why he stinks of vinegar. Yes, this was a cliffhanger that didn't get to us this time round, but it turns out that's only by George's design. He didn't want the thrill of the immediate, he wanted the dread of the long con. Instead of having us worry about Tyrion drowning, which we'd obviously get an answer to straight away, we will now have to carry around the worry that he has contracted Grayscale, the disease that Tyrion has spent a large portion of his time describing to us. A slow, terrible disease that is purely horrible to experience right up to death. We're going to have to carry that concern with us for a decent portion of the book because, of course, we would not want to see one of our favourite characters even this current version of him, go through such a fate that would not be enjoyable. Especially not of all these very interesting things he's just learnt, and not when we've been promised a meeting of him and Daenerys, how cruel a time to take him away from us, George. And let's not forget, at the time of publication, we've been waiting a long, long time to see Tyrion again, so we definitely don't want to lose him straight away. And George is going to dangle us over the cliff instead of pushing this time, as Tyrion has to check and check and check again that he's not got this disease, and George does that knowing that it produces another kind of crushing concern in his readers, this cloud that always hangs over us. It's not just a, a check and he's fine, it's something that's going to be constant. It's this unseen knife in the dark. And I doubt I need to point out how this will all be hitting us much harder than usual given our current world situation, and though most will breathe a sigh of relief from the irony of Griff having been the one to contract becomes known, that doesn't strictly mean Tyrion is safe, despite the amount of time that passes between now and the end of the book. Besides, it was this single event that got Griff to contract the disease. We spoke last time about how Tyrion just massively influenced the fate of the world by saving young Griff. Well, he might still be affecting a hell of a lot of it by Griff having pulled him out. This could be as simple as Griff going ultra selfish and concealing his disease and bringing it to Westeros and starting a pandemic this way, or maybe just sending it through the ranks of the Golden Company. Tyrion himself will later on have the quote, disease could wipe out an army quicker than any battle, he had once heard his father say. That comes later on in Tyrion 10. Or it could be more complicated in the influence of having a time limit that affects John Collington's decision once his Westeros campaign begins. We've already pondered about his desperation to not be beaten again, to be as ruthless as Tywin Lannister if needs be, to go to any length possible to have young Griff sit on that throne. Those feelings were there before the grayscale, so if he knows he has a limited time, he might be even quicker to violence or ruthlessness, and we expect to see those dire comparisons at some point. Or, finally, there will be a large fallout depending on his own death. It's unlikely, but if he should pass in the middle of this campaign for the Iron Throne, or even after young Griff has achieved that, but before Danny shows up, the perfectly constructed boy will have lost the biggest influence on his life, one of his best warriors, best advisors, best sources of knowledge on Westeros and the Royal Court. So losing that could have a rather large effect on proceedings, and it's all traceable back to this moment of Tyrion going into the water, and Griff again being the one to pull him out. 
So already we're talking about really large scale influences and we're not even at the large scale influence bit of the chapter yet. That's what I mean from saying that from beginning to end, this chapter is just weighty on the face of Westeros and the people in it. That fact that John Con saved him sticks out to Tyrion as a surprise. Why would he do such a dangerous thing just for Tyrion, who minutes before had spilled out all the secrets he was told not to? The only way Tyrion can rationalise it is as an act of hatred, because he now perceives every action towards him as such. He thinks, he must hate me, or he would have let me die. So if we were wondering about a near-death experience giving Tyrion a new attitude or a lease on life, I think we've just got our answer that that's not happening. He is still very much hateful for the world and his place in it, which is fitting for what comes later. But still, his curiosity remains as he starts asking questions. But Halden only answers one for now. They're in Sol Horus. So Tyrion is really continuing his journey around the world here, probably hitting on more named places than any other character in a single book. In fact, now that I think of it, I'm almost sure of that. If I find time, I'm going to check that for you and let you know next week. Possible contenders, I guess, would be the Storm versions of Danny and definitely Aya, maybe even an earlier version of Kalin. Mm, that's interested. I'd be tempted to do that now and fit it in, but if I haven't, make sure I do next week. Remind me. Anyway, to look at our maps, you can see we've obviously moved down south along the Rhoyne a bit and are now basically on the last segment of the river before reaching the coast and Volantis. There's no more tributaries joining us on the way. This is pretty much the Rhoyne now. As for the city itself, we know relatively little. In terms of history, we know it was involved in that second spice war that we detailed last time out, but that's about it. The name Selhorus sticks out to me, but I'm not sure why. The first time it is ever mentioned in the saga was in Tyrion 5, last chapter, when Halden Halfmaester was listing their upcoming destinations. That's it. After this chapter, in which the town, of course, does play a big role, it's not mentioned again except to remember these coming events in Tyrion 6. So I can't tell you why the name sticks out to me, but it definitely does. Perhaps it is purely for the very important events that do happen here in this chapter, as we'll get to. But before Tyrion can learn anything about his latest location, we have the introduction of his new health checker, pricking himself with a knife. This is to be his new routine, stabbing his appendages with a knife to make sure there is still feeling there, because if there isn't, it means trouble, and either amputation at best or death at worst. This is something we'll see Tyrion keep up for his next part of the book, again, keeping that dread around for all of us. And to double down on an earlier point of maybe not putting Tyrion in the clear just because Jonkon becomes ill, and Tyrion is showing no ill effects by the end of the book, Haldon gives us some key information. How long must I continue to torture myself? When will we be certain that I'm clean? Truly? said the half-maester. Never. You swallowed half the river. You may be going grey even now, turning to stone from inside out, starting with your heart and lungs. If so, pricking your toes and bathing in vinegar will not save you. So this test isn't even 100% accurate. Your fingers and toes might be safe, but the disease could be working on you unseen, inside your body and impossible to defend against. Yeah, this really is a tough chapter to read in current times, isn't it? So though Tyrion doesn't display symptoms, it may well be he carries the disease anyway. Yes, thank you 2020, we get the message now. Which might not only mean that he's slowly dying, and likely in an even more a painful way, but that he's going around spreading it on these ships that he sails on, or in the slaver's camp, or with the second sons later on. Think of how much time he's spending with Penny, for example. How worrying is that? There'd be some thematic resonance there, for George to have the reader convinced that it is John Con about to spread the disease through Westeros, which could happen in conjunction still, only for Tyrion to turn out to be the spreader. Consider that Tyrion hates the world and everyone in it right now. He dreams of returning home and wrecking vengeance on all. So what if he does that via Greyscale and never even knows it? Doesn't even get to actively participate in his own revenge? And if this were to happen after Tyrion makes some strides back towards being a better person like we will hope? Ugh. Yeah, there's definitely some of George's trademark cruel irony there. Consider also that so much of Tyrion's story is his inability to truly connect with anybody due to circumstances outside his control. For all of his life, it's been his physical appearance that stopped him being the same as everyone else, or in many ways, from being loved. So if we get a form of that again, of another barrier between Tyrion and the rest of the world, 
as we get a hint of with Howden staying away from him here on the other side of the table, it's going to be even harder for him. If Tyrion's disease becomes obvious, he'll be even more alone, even more hated and despised. He'll become the imp again, cast as a monster he never wanted to be, again because of circumstances outside his control. It'd be a heartbreaking end to his arc for sure, but it's definitely possible. And just to drive this point home with a bit of a dagger, imagine Tyrion finally does find Tysha again, only to infect her with grayscale. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's only now that Tyrion starts to get his bearings a bit as he realises they have mauled up on a pier outside the city that isn't even a city in this part of the world. It certainly would be over in Westeros, but here this is more like an outpost of Volantis, so we can start building on some of the stuff we saw in Quentin 1 and what we'll see later when Tyrion actually does get there, such as these volunteer soldiers appearing everywhere just to put some tension in the air. The Moor and Young Griff have come up on board, two major components of the effort to save Tyrion's life. Griff might have pulled him out, but it was Young Griff who wouldn't allow him to be thrown back in. So we see the lad has some moral fibre on top of the lessons taught to him by the crew. Or perhaps he was just curious to see how Tyrion worked out all their little secrets. Meanwhile, the more actually did the physical saving by forcing water from his lungs, that's what they say. Whether that means mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, or just physically manipulating him and getting damn lucky isn't made clear, but if it's the former, that's obviously a pretty brave move on the Moor's part, in terms of you know, disease and stuff like that. Maybe it's a hint to her origins as well. In Westeros, I believe the only place we've seen mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation is in the Iron Islands, where they've kind of stumbled upon it as part of their religious ceremonies. So, does she come from there? Or is this knowledge just more common in Essos, where they are more advanced in many ways? Perhaps it purely hints in her coming from the coast or living near a river. There is a scene in the show where Rob's wife, Talisa Mega, tells about her brother nearly drowning in Volantis and the slave saving him with mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. So maybe it's just a bigger part of life here. Depends on what you want to put in that. Certainly, it makes sense to know it when you are travelling on the Rhoyne. Rather than the saving of Tyrion's life being any particular focus, everyone essentially seems to ignore it for now, save for some quick words from the Moor. Young Griff is in a grump, just as he was before the Stone Men came, because he's not being allowed to adult like everyone else and go into town with Yandri and Yasilla. As with before, this is a matter of safety. We learn that Joffraki was sighted on the riverbanks while Tyrion was recovering from his unplanned swim. They were getting closer and their numbers increasing. In an apparent reaction, Volantis has sent soldiers up here to protect that outpost, so there's yet more tension in the air of this threat of violence. Clearly, the obvious choice is to not risk young Griff getting involved with any of it. What's the point? Why bother? I'm very interested in the increase of Dothraki movement this far west, as well as Tyrion's thoughts on their tactics. Perhaps it's because I've watched Lord of the Rings lately, but I wonder if we'll ever get to see a full-on Dothraki charge into an army of knights, akin to what we saw on the show. Will Daenerys ever take them that far? Will we even see it in Essos? There's still armies to be dealt with here as well, after all. We've already spoken a lot about them in Danny chapters, and they're becoming more prominent in Tyrion's also. So how large will their role in Winds be? We know they are going to play a part, at least seeing as they are currently with Daenerys and that's got to be resolved, but that's on the other side of the Dothraki Sea to where we are now. What role will they play in the settling of political matters in Essos? That's what I want to know. Tyrion, in his usual detached or sometimes cold or Tywin-esque way of thinking, focuses on their strategy. He thinks this. Even so, it is a small prize. If I were a car, I would faint as Sir Horus, let the Volantines rush to defend it, then swing south and ride hard for Volantis itself. We know George well by now. We know this is the exact kind of sentence we'll later be looking back on as foreshadowing. So the only question is, what does it point to? Is this what the Dothraki are already doing? Will someone else put a similar stunt here or elsewhere? Will Tyrion himself remember thinking this later on, should he be put back in charge of a fighting force? As we've mentioned several times already in these dance episodes, it's time for the Moor to change out of her scepter's robes and into the clothes of a merchant. As with us, the change gets both Tyrion and Howden curious. We spoke before of Tyrion not liking being unable to work out who she is, and though it didn't bother him much at the time, that's really coming out here, he's desperate to know. The more almost does a good job of explaining it as just a precaution, until she adds this tidbit. She turned back to Prince Aegon. 
You're not the only one who must needs hide. That seems way too specific. Now we're really wondering who she is. We're just as bad as Tyrion. Why would she need to hide specifically? What has she done in her past? What was her former name? Up to this point, it's been really easy to make the argument she really is no one that we're supposed to know. Maybe just a relation to young Griff or Illyro or someone invested in the plan. But that little sentence really does point us towards knowing something of her past or being able to connect her to someone somewhere. It also seems there's been an unspoken agreement to stop pretending about young Griff's identity now. Maybe I should join in and start referring to him as Aegon. Well, we'll see how that goes. The Moor has spoken about Kingsguard, Tyrion names him Prince, and no one bats an eye. It's probably nice for them to get it off their chest for once. Tyrion thinks about how he might be perfectly constructed with all the right stats to become this perfect prince, but he still knows nothing of the world, and the boy feels that to a certain degree. So Tyrion begins to think on how he can take advantage of that. The answer? Sebas, as always. The answer is always Sebas. Perhaps more importantly than selecting their field of battle, Tyrion has also surmised that the way to push young Griff's buttons is via his pride, as it is with so many nobles, especially the young male ones. So, the game begins, and Tyrion smartly uses it to find out more about this potential king's traits and personality, and again, how he can take advantage of such. This is really one of the important bits we've reached it now. Like we just said, it seems to be the standard for young men of this age. Young Griff arrayed his army for attack, with dragon, elephants, and heavy horse up front. A young man's formation, as bold as it is foolish. He risks all for the quick kill, Tyrion thought. Tyrion can see how this might transfer over from a game into real life, and by the time we finish wins, perhaps we will too. Here is where Tyrion begins his gentle prodding. Not too strong, not too brusque, not yet. At the moment, the aim is just to put him off balance, to get him second-guessing about his situation. Just open a few cracks. It begins subtle as you like, sowing the smallest of seeds of doubt in why John Connington might be loyal to the grandson of the king who banished him. Hmm. Then he moves to a subject we already know is sore with young Griff, the story of his head being bashed against a wall. Whether it bothers him because he sees it as an accusation that that really did happen and he's actually the imposter, or truly believes this is the real account and feels a level of guilt somewhere in his soul that a baby boy was sold by his parents and then killed to protect him, is not really explored to us thanks to not having his POV. He certainly seems to believe he is who they say he is, but I wonder if he's ever hidden dark doubts in his mind. If so, he's likely squashed them into near oblivion by now, but does that in turn mean he does feel some level of guilt about the pisswater boy? Again, it doesn't appear so, but maybe somewhere deep in his soul. Of course, even if that is what happened, it's not his fault. He didn't choose any of that. The guilt should lie with Varys and Ilya and this horrible drunken father. But it would still be a very odd, complicated feeling to know that a baby was killed so that you might live. And really, if it is true, it's just a damn dark read, isn't it? So that fills in some gaps of the story that we hadn't really laid out yet. But for Tyrion, it's all a build up to his much larger point. The crux on which this whole conversation, again this incredibly, incredibly important conversation, is going to swing. How do you know Daenerys is going to take you for her consort? It's actually a paragraph or two above that young Griff flushed, but you get the same impression here. He doesn't hesitate and is a 100% confident answer that she will take him because what is there to consider? Of course she will. It's confirmed. It's basically canon. That's what they've told me will happen. All this time that's what they've been saying. This is the crack that Tyrion can really exploit. Making someone wonder about things they've always wondered about is one thing, but making them wonder about something that has always been as solid as Cassidy Rock to them, that takes real skill. And this is where we see the downside of young Griff's raising. He's been provided with everything, never lacked for what he needs, but has basically been wrapped in cotton wool, so has never had to truly experience life. No disappointment for him, not even any real surprises. He's never had to deal with randomness or the human element of everything not lining up exactly as it should. Almost everyone he's ever met, at least that's how it's presented to us, has had his welfare and what he wants in mind. The world has existed to help him. Hardship is just a foreign word. Not even hardship, even that's too far. But dealing with someone who might want different things to him. That's 
completely a strange concept. The grand plan of Valis and Ilio to basically lab create the perfect king, but the flaws are really showing here. And that allows Tyrion to step right on in. Hardship is basically tattooed on him. He's almost only ever dealt with people who want different things than him. That, plus he has about a million times more exposure to real life and real people. Of course, Tyrion is older. And it's also not Younger's fault that he's been stuck on a boat and cushioned or smothered by so many people that he's basically become the Westerosi version of a diva. He's that celebrity who's been made a celebrity too young on the Disney Channel or something, but never experiences real life and then maybe collapses when finally exposed to it. You have to feel sorry for those kind of folks, I certainly do. But Tyrion knows how to examine people, their background, their desires, their angle, why their experiences will shape what they want and how to interact with them. Basically, Young Griff would do better in a simpler novel, where characters aren't as rounded and fleshed out as George makes them. He needs a world of thin NPCs who just play their role, because that's basically all he's ever dealt with. But Tyrion comes from a song of ice and fire. He knows how George operates. So he begins making his point, and starts out strong. She will, Aegon said. She must. Must? Tyrion made a Tuscan sound. That is not a word queens like to hear. This is the point, Young Griff, slash Aegon might be when we called. You are dealing with a queen here, not a princess, not a king's wife or someone who's been told she's awaiting a marriage to someone more important, a queen in her own right. Everyone has been telling you, you are number one. The sun revolves around you. You come first of all your wants and desires. But what do you think they've been telling her? No one uses the word must with you very often, and it's the exact same for Daenerys. For the first time ever, you're going to meet someone who might consider themselves more important than you. And again, that concept is completely alien to this young guy here. Tyrion then builds on that by cementing that they are also dealing with a woman infinitely more experienced and accomplished than young Griff. If you were to present him to a usual princess, sure, they'd be blown away. But this is someone who's already been married to someone of very high importance, and also someone who's produced a metric tons worth more masculine energy than young Griff would ever be able to. If Drogo were still alive, I'm going to go ahead and guess this team would be pretty intimidated by him. But it's also a woman who has things he doesn't in The Dragons, has done things he hasn't in The Taking of Cities. She is the bee's knees, not you. You've got to persuade her to take you, not the other way around. Without you, she's still got a whole bunch going for her. But without her, you've not got much left. This clearly has an effect on young Griff. George even spells it out for us. It was plain he had never before considered the possibility that his bride-to-be might refuse him. So he acts out by going on the offensive and claiming Tyrion doesn't know her, because he obviously wants Tyrion to be wrong about all this, and he even shows off a bit of his petulance by slamming his heavy horse playing piece down as if Tyrion needed a clearer signal that this is working. So he pushes harder with his reasoning of what Daenerys has been through. And you've got to say, considering he's never met the girl, or even given her much thought prior to like two weeks ago, he pretty much nails it. He gives evidence for her pride, her strength, her ferocity, and then perfectly combines three superb points. One, that Aegon is coming to ask for something that he needs from her, while she doesn't need a thing from him. Two, that he is going to seem completely inconsequential and beneath her, having spent his life on a boat and not much else. And three, perhaps most importantly, he is going to ask her all this in order to improve his own claim, which is already better than hers, and would therefore be weakening her own situation if she were to help him. The reaction? Aegon's mouth twisted in fury. Oh yeah, I bet it does. This is the first time anyone has ever spoken to young Griff in a direct, frank manner, and it shows. It looks like Tyrion has just hit him with a sledgehammer. To continue our earlier point, his whole life people have said things, and then they've happened. So when Jon Con says Daenerys will accept you, Young Griff has taken that as gospel, because of course she will. Who wouldn't? Everybody loves me. I've been built to be perfect. But now someone has actually lifted the curtain on the real world, bothered to expand the details. It's all fairly obvious stuff if Young Griff had ever stopped to think about it, but he's never needed to, and the truth stings. Tyrion is also lacing in these extra button pushes in there to get his fury out. 
This already established idea of her having a, achieved a ton while he has done nothing. The idea that he'll be acting as a beggar because he is asking but not offering anything. And then the implication that he is a coward or a child because he's been on the pole boat while she's been busy conquering at war. And of course, this all works brilliantly on Ungriff because of his age and status. That pride is most definitely pricked now. And we'd be almost remiss to not mention that there's likely an element of sexism in here as well. It's not explored in the text, and I think Aegon is still likely worked up if we're talking about his uncle instead of his aunt. He already feels small and outmatched. I mean, it might just sting him a bit more. The woman has done all these things. He hasn't, because unfortunately, that's the kind of society we're looking at here. So this is all working swimmingly for Tyrion. There, that's made him good and angry. The dwarf could not help but think of Joffrey. I have a gift for angering princes. He's got him as off-kilter as he can. The only rallying cry young Griff can summon is that he'll be coming with his own army, which will make him seem prestigious and put them on equal footing. But that's too easy for Tyrion to swat away. He's like Dikembe Mutombo here. One small army against all the many, many friends that Daenerys has earned. That's not enough. The argument is too much for the lad, and he has no more comebacks. So he falls back on what he's always survived on. Blind confidence that someone will look after him, and it'll all work out in the end. Jon Connor's always come up strong before, so why not now? But that allows Tyrion to segue into the second part of his grand argument, and it's one that allows us to see how brilliantly he structured this whole conversation. Here, he makes what is one of his key points and one of the most influential parts of this meeting. Trust no one. From lovely the Moor to seemingly all-powerful Jonkon, to those above him and not even Daenerys herself. Trust can only earn you weakness in the end, is what he basically says. Now, if Tyrion had just come out of that straight away, it would have had no effect. He would have just glanced off Yungriff's shields. But because he waited and saved this for part two of the conversation, it gets right through and begins making damage. Because, like we said, Tyrion has already got him off kilter. He's got him thinking. Got him thinking that maybe everything he was once so confident about is not so secure. So if he was wrong about that, could he be wrong about who to trust as well? And Tyrion has clearly demonstrated he has a point. As well as pointing out these people Yungriff trusts so much have not placed him in the best position or been straight with him. So it shields down, direct hit for Tyrion. In turn, the lightning quick part two of the argument flings the door wide open for part three, which comes right here. And this is the haymaker. This is the real point of it all. Perhaps part two would have had consequences down the road on its own, but we know for a certainty part three changes the fortunes of maybe half the world, maybe more for all we know. And it's all because of Tyrion knowing how to structure his conversation and how to work people. Now that he has young Griff's mind working and doubting, he slips this in. Your false father is a great lord, and I am just some twisted little monkey man. Still, I'd do things differently. That got the boy's attention. How differently? Again, the subtlety is key. We've just established that John Con is maybe not so great. We've just established Tyrion clearly does know what he's talking about and is worth listening to. And most importantly, Tyrion doesn't push. He doesn't just launch into a lecture because he knows that's all this kid has ever been forced to listen to. He lets young Griff participate. He lets him ask. And then away he goes. If I were you... I would go west instead of east, land in dawn and raise my banners. The seven kingdoms will never be more ripe for conquest than they are right now. So there it is everybody, the words that will change the direction of this entire book and all those still to come. The ancient plans of Varys and Illyro and Jonkon changed forever, the future of the Golden Company, the current war for Westeros and obviously everything to do with Daenerys, as well as all the countless lives involved with all, changed forever thanks to this one mastermind of a conversation. Is it Truly tough to get across just how monumental this is. I'm not going to do a good enough job of it. Even now, we can look back and imagine how different things would be if these two had never talked. Imagine how much we'll be able to attribute to it once the series actually ends. It's damn tempting to read the entire paragraph to you here because Tyrion basically reads out the synopsis of A Feast for Crows. His political astuteness has gone nowhere. 
Remember, he's not been around for half of this yet. He makes pretty damn good guesses on Jamie turning down power, like he did with the handship. Kevin making a good regent, but only by necessity, as we'll see later on in the epilogue. Everyone hating Stannis. Mace not being allowed to advance as much as he'd like to. And he's still very much correct about chaotic north and a devastated riverlands. And of course, his true bullseye is his thoughts on Cersei's rule, which I will read to you. Cersei is as gentle as King Maegor, as selfless as Aegon the Unworthy, as wise as Mad Ares. She never forgets her slight, real or imagined. She takes caution for cowardice and dissent for defiance, and she is greedy. Greedy for power, for honour, for love. Tommen's rule is bolstered by all the alliances that my Lord Father built so carefully, but soon enough she will destroy them, every one. I have to ask, did Tyrion have a copy of Feast in his back pocket while he's talking here? This is almost word for word how Cersei messes up King's Landing, as we spoke about so much previously. He knows her, he's smart, and he knows the arena of King's Landing, and therefore has been able to basically guess the results. Young Griff can't confirm, obviously, even Tyrion can't confirm, but it sure is sweet for us readers to see how predictable Cersei's awfulness is for Tyrion. And though Tyrion doing this is obviously wrapped up in his first for chaotic revenge on his family, as well as his general love of manipulation of this world he now hates, he's also damn correct about Westeros being as ripe as possible. These are still dire times for the continent. There are still multiple enemies to the crown and incredibly poor leadership, and that will only last so long. Varys later will do his bit to keep it going, but the fact remains that Westeros is incredibly vulnerable and there is an element of truth in the advice he's giving, even if we can argue about the faith in which he presents it. Because this is another part of what Tyrion hides brilliantly here. He doesn't care about Younger's claim or what happens to the Targaryens. He cares about hurting Cersei and maybe some other Lannisters while he's at it. He wants to take away what she cares for most. And this is as good a place as any to point out that he doesn't spare a thought for what this would all mean for Tommen, his once beloved nephew. On top of that, he sort of wants to see the world burn. Maximum chaos, maximum damage, that'll show him. He hates the world, yet he loves proving he can still manipulate it. He still has power even when the world insisted that he didn't. And a side note here, an underlying part of this is that Tyrion is also really proving how worthy he can be as a point of information for Westeros and for this mission. Remember, Tyrion obviously isn't planning on being kidnapped later, he does want to get back to Westeros and take his part in his vengeance and maybe see what he can carve out for himself. And he's going to do that by providing what no one else can, not just in his skill of analysing people and guessing their movements or how they can be manipulated, but also just how fresh his information is. No one else close to Young Griff can compete with that. Tyrion knows nearly everybody in Westeros, how they work, how they interact, the latest goings on. The information the Shy Bane normally gets first has to come all the way from Illyrio, he has to get it all the way from Varys, so by the time it reaches John Con's ears, it's probably old and obviously not as fruitful as what Tyrion can bring to the table right now. And this is all, you know, kind of a punt from Tyrion. He's not saying this is definitely my ironclad plan, this isn't going to work, but why not see if you can push the kid's button and see what you can get out of it. But all of that is to come a bit later as a focus. Before that, Tyrion has to counter the problem that young Griff is saying, well, hang on, we need dragons, don't we? This is all being about the dragons, this whole trip. All of Haldon's lessons are all about how we can win with dragons. That's tough to argue with. So Tyrion smartly cuts another inch off his own nose slash argument by saying, this isn't about winning, it's about levelling the Targaryen playing field. So again, structure comes into play. None of this works without saying that seed of doubt and playing on the ego of young Griff not matching his aunt. Go to Westeros, though. Ah, then you're a rebel, not a beggar. Bold, reckless, a true scion of House Targaryen, walking in the footsteps of Aegon the Conqueror. A dragon. Elements of this would work on the lad even without Daenerys being an issue. The promise of greater glory, of getting more credit, that's always going to work on this type of person. With that earlier groundwork, it really hits home. You can be as great as her. You don't need to feel intimidated. You don't need to feel you're coming from a lesser position. 
That's all effective enough before Tyrion backs it up with the possibility that Daenerys first this way of events because she'll hear she's finally not alone in the world, that she has something even more to fight for than what she previously believed, and that she loves rescuing people so that she really is a carer. This part of the conversation is pretty much pure Tyrion spin. Aside from the love of rescuing part, I very much doubt Tyrion believes Daenerys will be overjoyed to hear of this other Targaryen and will be super impressed with all that he's achieved. But in fairness, it could be true, or kind of anyway. When Danny finally hears that her supposed nephew is alive, it could genuinely be an emotional moment for her. She believed herself entirely alone in the world, but there's a possibility that she's now not. There might be another remnant of the family and the brother she never got to know. So at the very least, it's going to be very intriguing for her. But what Tyrion is conveniently leaving out, that this is the ultimate best case scenario. It doesn't include Danny doubting the truth of the claim, which we know will already be a heightened focus for her due to the prophecies and warnings about betrayal she's constantly getting. It doesn't include Danny worrying about her own claim and everything she's worked for, and this idea that she might be usurped and having it taken away. Although I will say that Tyrion hits on something I've not thought of much before, this idea of the time element. In this very book, we've already seen Daenerys basically say, Westeros isn't going anywhere, I've got plenty of time. By the end of the book, we know she'll be pretty much done with Marine and more geared towards Westeros, but still, the eventual news of Aegon's existence will change everything. She no longer has all the time in the world if a Targaryen is going to beat her there, take her role as the Great Returner, and set up a more stable government and military for her to come against. Now it really matters how quickly she can get there, so this might be the spark needed to get Danny moving west sharpish, which would be nice. Tyrion wraps up by directly addressing what was clearly Youngris' main concern, this idea of coming to her as a beggar or a lesser person. Do this, Tyrion says, and you'll be equals. You'll be as powerful as the Dragon Queen, and a lot more likely to be accepted by her besides. To send home his point, that he knows what he's talking about, and that he's right about all of this, Tyrion makes his final move and finishes the game of Savas that young Griff has clearly been distracted from. Your king is trapped. Death in four. The prince stared at the playing board. My dragon is too far away to save you. You should have moved to the centre of the battle. But you said I lied. Trust no one and keep your dragon close. That's a mic drop moment right there, isn't it? This is the moment where we must lean back, stroke our chins, and just give Tyrion a nod of appreciation. The structuring, the capping off of this little bow, the seamless joining of talk and game playing is a masterpiece. There's no other word for it. But there's also an ironic lesson in Tyrion reminding young Griff to trust no one while also saying keep your dragon close, despite him just advising to do the complete opposite. That part is likely lost on young Griff, who explodes up and kicks the table over. He's incensed at losing, he's incensed he's basically got tricked, he's incensed that Tyrion made some really good points, and worst of all, he was made to feel less than a king, hence him fixing that by giving Tyrion some orders and seeing them obeyed. Tyrion obliges because he knows the damage is done, the mission complete. He just sent this guy dancing on some brand new strings. And that could have been the end of the chapter right there, if we're honest, that would have been a pretty effective ending, especially that keep your dragon close line. But as it turns out, it's merely the first half of this very long, again, very important chapter. Nothing will come close to that conversation we just witnessed in terms of ultimate influence. A few things in the whole book will, but still. So now we enter the second half, which begins with Yandri and Yasilla returning to the boat with some supplies, and Yasilla reminding us of our earlier point about Tyrion being shunned now because of this association with his disease. Yasilla was fairly nice to him before, but now wants nothing to do with him, even when Tyrion is offering to help her. He's unclean, he's not to come near. Again, it's not really focused on here, but it plays into what Tyrion has felt like his entire life. And it's unfair, he didn't choose to go into that water, but there we go. We're reminded a bit of Val's aggression towards Shireen later on in the book. More important than that, there's news. Big news for this ship particularly. Rumour has it Daenerys is still marine, surrounded by her enemies. Volantis might be the latest to sail against her. Whatever the situation is, she's definitely not where she's supposed to be so that they can meet up. Howden and Griff 
Both want further verification of these rumours, but Tyrion is a step ahead thinking of what this means. By pure luck, it fits in incredibly well with what he's already told you on Griff. Now, Daenerys isn't even here anyway. You'd have to go the opposite way to what you want to get to her, and probably have to fight your way through people just to do it. In fairness, you could also make the argument that you'll solve the beggar problem if you cut through her enemies and save her, but no one is focusing on that yet, even if it were possible. Tyrion's words and promises of glories are already working too deep under Young Griff's skin. Tyrion also ponders the problems of why she has not come, correctly guessing that the ships are part of the issue, but having no idea about all the other plagues that Danny currently faces. He mentions Mentiris again, a city of monsters, he says, which really makes me wonder if we are going to see that place that's got so much steady build-up. My guess is that we will. But Griff wants to know more before there's any further discussion, so Halden and Tyrion take their turn of being sent ashore to play detective, being the two smartest, and hence Tyrion leaves the Shy Maid forever. Now we enter Selhoris proper and basically discover it's Philantis Light, which makes sense given its proximity and ownership. This is a melting pot of people all new to Tyrion though, new languages, new aesthetics with these coloured lamps casting their glow on everything. Even the sex workers are different here as Tyrion notes that they are slaves, not free women. Yet that doesn't stop him wondering about his father's final words and his eternal question that was formed from them. Tyrion notes that they all have teardrop tattoos, so we have that connection from Quentin's Volantis chapter to shore up where we are in the world. To keep on that theme, Tyrion next buys green striped tattoos across the cheeks of men, marking them as slave soldiers, but also notes how proud they are of these adornments. So now we're crossing into Danny chapter territory, with these discussions on some slaves finding pride or happiness in their place in life, and then losing it when they are freed. Tyrion wonders on this exact point, and whether these men could ever be anything else. Theoretically, they could still be soldiers, but something would have changed for many of them, it won't feel the same. It's that incredibly interesting psychological question we've already asked ourselves, in this case, I would guess that for a lot of these slave soldiers, despite the fact they are slaves, their position as soldiers gives them a rank above others. They have a level of prestige. People have to notice them, be wary of them. They do have the power to kill. Some people have none of that, and it's an unfortunate comment on humanity that many people are quite happy to ignore their own chains as long as there's someone beneath them wearing heavier ones. One of these tigers grabs Tyrion and rubs his head for good luck, again showing how different this part of the world is. It's not just a different culture, but how Tyrion has to interact with it. Can you imagine a guard picking him up when he was handed the king? Of course not, or even just when he was a Lannister. There's none of that protection now though, that bubble is gone. This is a completely different time in his life. We've made that point many times before, but it was one thing to say it when he was safe in the litter or on a little ship. Now, this is the first time Tyrion has actually been out in the wild, amongst people, and has not been Tyrion Lannister, so it's a huge adjustment. What other Volantis or Essos type things can Tyrion be exposed to now he's finally out on the streets? Or how about R'hllor and his Red Priests? Like with Daenerys, this is a theme that hasn't really intersected with Tyrion at all so far. He's had some minor brushes of religion and thought about Forest of Myr a few times, but not enough to make it an actual part of his storyline, and definitely, like I say, nothing to do with the Red God really. That will come to change in this book, not here, and not enough to particularly sway his journey, but definitely more present than before. There's every chance that there's something he'll have to deal with more and more if he becomes further invested in Danny's camp, so let's introduce the early elements to him now. After having a brief look around this square and marking both the differences and similarities to his own city, as well as some more history on triarchs and tigers and elephants, perhaps hinting at upcoming rest from later elections, Tyrion and Halden head over to this preaching pyromaniac priest because Halden figures that he heard the name Daenerys. The only problem is Tyrion cannot see or hear, so he has to wait for Halden to translate for him, and he gets a bit stroppy about this, relying on others for his information or having to wait like a child, as well as the insinuation that he pipes, but he uses the pause to make the same notes as we did in actual Volantis. The slaves vastly outnumber the freedmen. Like, vastly, vastly. This seems like pretty bad planning on someone's part, but I suppose control will seduce them into thinking that they will always have it. 
Again, we have to ask what the result is going to be should Danny come and incite another uprising. Complete domination by the slaves? Slave-on-slave violence if those soldiers stick to the pride in their stripes? Halden soon updates us on what's going on. This indeed is a call to war, as Yandri and the Asilla already told us, but this priest is advocating fighting for Daenerys. He claims it is a holy war, that fighting for Daenerys is fighting for the Lord of Light himself. There's even this prophecy that she hits all the marks for, this incredibly important role that will affect the whole world. Needless to say, this is also a pretty important passage. For the immediate, there is conflict inside Volantis and all the towns it controls. The state is supporting one side in the Yunkai, and all those fellas, where the church is supporting the other in Daenerys. So again, if this all comes to a head, it looks like it's going to get really messy. This is also the confirmation that they were sent to find. Indeed, war is being advised, and Volantis is going to move against Daenerys, likely meaning she is not travelling anytime soon and is still in marine like the rumours suggested. The Red Gods are against the two triarchs, Neos and Malakwo, so there's conflict there too. It's all feeding into the election stuff all over again. It's getting complex, but it's getting important too. Yet not nearly so important as the larger storyline, one we honestly hadn't seen coming and probably isn't flagged enough as a major revelation for the first time reader. The Red Priests not only want to side with Daenerys, they believe she is Azor Ahai, their chosen one. There are two large subjects of discussion to address here. First is that this is either a major get or a major drain on Daenerys and her campaign. The support of this gigantic organisation that clearly has immeasurable influences and resources and money, connections, followers and warriors is clearly helpful in some ways. She's about to have a war on her doorstep and even getting past that, she has to transport herself and huge numbers of people across a dangerous continent before the big task of actually taking Westeros. These people can obviously help all three of those causes in numerous ways. It lays credit to her overall mission and makes her a ruler of the people. It's basically one of the biggest support boys she could hope to get. But there is another side, because with this comes expectations, demands possibly, ways of going about things or unseeable chains that will bind her. This could end up just being another set of rabbit ears for her to have to wear, another group of people that Danny has to keep happy if she wants to keep her people safe and get her mission complete. And these ones will be very very hard to shed indeed if she ends up disagreeing, given all that influence we just described. And that's with normal support, not even addressing the Azor High thing. Clearly, they have very specific plans for her, and they might not always align with her own, so there is certainly the possibility for fiery conflict. Besides, this is not Danny's actual religion. She was born under the rule of the Seven, essentially. Though she's since experienced the Dothraki view of religion and many others, and doesn't seem particularly bothered about the faith itself, which isn't unusual for a Targaryen, she definitely hasn't shown any kinship for the Red God. I took a look, and she's thought about the Red Priest just five times, and that's normally because she's seen them in the street or somewhere. So is she really going to sell out her beliefs for what they can offer? And would they accept a no if they believe her to be Azor high, Or are they just going to chain her and use her anyway? We also have Westeros to consider. She's always contended to go back and claim her own throne, but she's never had any thoughts about going and changing the established religion. That's going to be a hurdle, obviously, not a springboard. We already know of those difficulties that Stannis has had to speak about so much during his ventures. Which brings us to the second discussion point. Benero, the Volantis High Priest, has declared Danny to be Azor high. Um... Don't we already have one of those? For the last three books, we've had Melisandre established as the face of the Red God and Stannis as her Azor High. She's always been on her own, that's true, but we've kind of taken her at her word. So what gives here? She believes one thing, Bonero another. He incites all sorts of questions. Like, who is actually in charge of this religion? Is there going to be another faction with a third champion? Is Melisandre some rogue going off and doing her own thing, or is she simply behind the times, hasn't caught up and known about Daenerys? Will there be conflict within the religion over who their true saviour is, and if so, what does that mean for the two individuals themselves? When Tyrion starts bringing up Forest of Myr, you realise that the Red Priests really, really need to improve their communication system and get on the same page about something. 
On top of that, though we as a fandom and as rereaders have long been debating the Azora High Prophecy and who fits it, or whether we should be really giving it any credence in the first place, this is one of the first times in the text itself and the characters within that suggests that it is not Stannis but Daenerys who is Azora High. So our own long-held suspicions are taking a big leap forward here about Danny's role in the larger story, her link to the endgame and what is happening in the North. Whether you want to play into this being predestined or not is a matter of opinion, but if in-world characters are going to believe it, then it leaves little distinction anyway. We all assume she's going to be shepherded up there somehow, but this might be our first breadcrumb that tells us how or why. And also, one more thought. This is a match made in heaven. Can you imagine what these guys would be like seeing actual Dragonflame, the Red Priests I mean? It would blow their minds. Let's just picture Melisandre witnessing that kind of power, that firepower. There really is no better symbol of their religion for them, so we can imagine just how big an effect this is going to have. It also does make you wonder what's going to happen with Stannis. We already have his two cold sword, and soon enough he's going to be on the worst side of things in terms of his actual situation, so cracks are definitely appearing, which might get doubled down upon depending on what happens with John at the wall. Now he's going to have another contender possibly coming for him down the road, maybe coming along and stealing the glory after he's put the hard graft in, in his eyes, and possibly more conflict for a sore witness. There's always the possibility that Melisandre moves against Daenerys as well to protect her own interests, whether that be Stannis or John. Perhaps one day, someone will have the superb idea that they could all help with this problem, but that sounds a bit hopeful, doesn't it? Such large, spanning questions are of no concern to our two characters here. They have their own mission, and Halden figures they can make their next step forward by, wouldn't you know it, Morsevas. This time he takes Tyrion into an inn, where a thin man and a big man are playing, and declares Tyrion to be the far superior player. And he might be being truthful, considering his own losses last time out. Tyrion, no stranger to the make a brash comment and see what it gets you game, thinks he had as well play his part, and angers the big man by commenting on his loss while impressing the thin man enough to let him play a game. Halden names the man as Quavo Nogaris, customs officer and a hell of a Savas player. So the two pull their grift, if you can call it that, of Tyrion playing while Halden learns some extra information about what's going on. Most of it we as readers already know or could have guessed at. Yunkai is imploring Volantis to fight on their side. To win them, they have employed bribery, which unfortunately includes hundreds of young slaves, and propaganda by painting Daenerys as this terrible enemy who sends her dragons to eat children or kills envoys. We would expect this sort of slander, dragging out just enough of the truth for it to make sense, and we discussed Danny's council worrying about word of Drogon's exploits coming out. It's not fair, it annoys us, but it is expected. As is, unfortunately, the sexism and criticism of Danny's gender thrown in at the end. It wouldn't be good slander if it didn't focus on her sexual habits, as it seems so rarely to do if Danny were a man. They have to try and shame her not only in sexual practice, but in the idea she's only involved to try and take men's souls. We've seen this kind of dragging down across our own history as well, and again, unfortunately, it's not a surprise. Halden is smart enough to point out the sources for all these accusations are from her enemies, the ones who feel wronged and are trying to recruit allies, so they might not be the best sources of information. Quavo shrugs that off before getting to the true source of consternation. If they were being honest, Yunkai would have no problem with child-eating, or oath-breaking, or even soul-stealing. But smashing their precious slave trade? No, no, no. That cannot be allowed. We've already explored this in depth in Danish chapters, how cataclysmic her freeing of the slaves is to the economic system and power structure in this part of the world, how her enemies will do anything to protect it, so George is just doubling down on that idea by showing us this other side and how far-reaching it all goes. But we also get some extras. It's not just their money the slavers are worried about, but their lives. And the same goes for all the nobles as well. As we've mentioned before, there are thousands upon thousands of more slaves in Volantis and likely other cities as well. If they hear about Danny and her freeing conquests, and everyone else throwing off their shackles, it plants the idea that they can do it too. Maybe they don't even need to wait for it, they could do it themselves. So the system would be destroyed in another way, a way that would mean certain death for countless people. 
Needless to say, they hate Daenerys for planting such an idea. They have existed for millennia by convincing their slaves that there is no hope and they must get on with this way of life. Now the breaker of chains comes along and upends everything. So she has to be dealt with severely to end this idea forever. And it's good evidence that this supposed peace that the Yunkai later proposed was never going to be adhered to. That wouldn't be enough. She has to be destroyed in the most complete way possible. Quavo gives us this extra part of even the poor man hating her because he considers himself higher than a slave. So that much is some of the things we've already seen in Marine and what we spoke about earlier on everyone being okay as long as they consider themselves better off than someone else. No doubt that will rear its head again as well. Tyrion gets involved now, pressing for information on Bonero and his red priest siding with Daenerys. As we pondered before, there is conflict within his own religion as well as with other worshippers. It seems conflict is going to be unavoidable on this subject. And Bonero also claims... The Volantis will surely burn if the Triarchs take up arms against the Silver Queen. Tyrion agrees, and we likely do as well. Considering her change of stance at the end of this book, and the difficulties she's had in Marine trying to rule, it wouldn't be surprising at all to see her say, You want a dragon? Here's a dragon. And unleash Dragonfire truly for the first time. It's got to happen somewhere, and Volantis is likely going to be in her path. They've moved against her in the past, and George has and will spend time setting up the city for us. We're already in an area completely changed by dragons in the past, so this could be very clearly foreshadowing indeed. It's dragons that Tyrion wisely focuses on, both within the Savas game and without. He argues Danny's free cannot be matched, but Quavo insists the sheer number of enemies neutralises them. He confirms what Zoro hinted at in Danny's chapters. Fighters are coming from New Geese, Telosi, and other places. She's affected an entire continent with her breaking of change, and it seems all are moving against her in retaliation. Even Dothraki are moving, apparently, which is interesting. We also get confirmation it is Carb Hono that is bothering Selhorus currently, but Quavo is not worried. He's too busy winning the game by taking out one of Tyrion's beloved dragons with a catapult. Can we see this as a clue for how one of the true dragons will die? Well, I bloody doubt it, but you do you. Howden is satisfied with the information they've received and the source they've received it from. He turns down another game and starts moving back towards the Shy Maid until the pair pass a brothel and Tyrion suggests stopping. He says there might be information inside. He says wanting a woman is natural after a near-death experience, but within his own mind, he wonders if Taisha could possibly be in there. As long as Tyrion has been wondering about her location, to us anyway, this is the first time he's had the possibility of actually checking or looking. Of course, the chances are a million to one, a billion to one, and he knows that, but why not check when it means the whole world to you? Besides, actual sexual desire is likely a strong element in this choice, even if Tyrion doesn't think on it directly. So Halden agrees, Tyrion enters, and the pair split, perhaps to never reunite again. Fates had changed across the board with this decision, and it unfortunately heralds the beginning of the part of the book that, I'll be honest, I've dreaded speaking about. Number one, simply because the content of this passage is intensely uncomfortable, it's not nice to read, and it's even less nice to have to analyse or talk about it. If I had the choice, I'd just skip right over the whole thing, but unfortunately, it's too important to do that. And number two, this is also just a really hard thing to do justice to. I want to make sure I approach all the angles correctly and don't miss anything out and do right by the passage here, even though I might not really be the best qualified. So I suppose what follows is just my best attempt, and feel free to reach out or correct me or put your own two cents in. Or, if this section is a bit too hard for you to get through, I'm going to come back here now and tell you where you need to skip to if you'd like to just bypass that scene, for which I certainly don't blame you for. So here I am from the future, and I can tell you if you skip forward to about the two-hour mark, Give or take uh, maybe a minute or so from little editing cuts that need to happen, but just about the two hour mark should get you to the very end of Tyrion, the little bit extra bit we get at the end, and then on to Daenerys. This is difficult for many reasons. Like I said, the actual events of the passage, analysing them properly, but also us being in the mind of someone committing this terrible crime, and it being the mind who many of us have loved being inside before, is tough. 
We're incredibly familiar with Tyrion. He's a fan favourite for many. We know George loves writing him. And he's generally considered a top three character of the entire series, at worst. And we've sympathised with him for the various crimes committed against him, especially at the end of Storm. So to see such a character as that do this can bring up a lot of emotions besides the sheer emotion of having to read it in the first place. There can be disappointment, shock, general misery that someone we once liked and might have tentatively labelled as good has sunk to this level and has done something so terrible. It can be a very tough hill to climb as readers, which sounds very trivial considering the subject we're reading about, but this is how we access the story and what we're here to talk about, so that's how we have to do it. This is, again, a tough one to accept, make no mistake. And somehow that manifests into certain fans not defending it per se, but certainly mislabeling it. So let me just get this out of the way right here and now at the beginning, give you another reminder of that timer that you might need to skip to. Again, head for the, about the two hour mark dead if you do want to skip. This is rape that we witness in this passage. There's no argument about that in my mind. Yes, it is a business transaction, but let us not forget that this young girl is a slave. There's no hint of consent in any of this. That cannot be ignored in my mind. And again, perhaps I'm not the best person to ask, but I can only tell you how I feel about it. But even beyond that transactional nature of it, there is the spirit in which Tyrion does this act, the faith in which he acts. This is not his relationship with Shay. This is the pure use of a human body with zero regard for the person inside. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but let's just set this line right up here at the beginning. Tyrion rapes a young girl. He sinks to his lowest point of the book, of his life. Dark Tyrion, or Monster Tyrion, is well and truly here, after his kind of nice time aboard the Shy Maid, and it's very difficult to deal with. Some of that plays into George's constant messages about there being no straight lines to redemption, that no one is an onion as Melisandre sees an onion. People are good, and they are bad. And though we have seen Tyrion be good, and we'll do again, just as we've seen him be bad, and we'll do again, here he is his very worst, and there's no getting around or ignoring that. But let's start at the beginning, with Tyrion entering the brothel. Unfortunately, it's not a great start when he looks around the various slave girls inside, and ridicules their physicality or beauty within his own mind. Now, again, yes, this is transactional, and there obviously needs to be some level of attraction for this to work, but Tyrion's inner monologues sounding as if he is checking out livestock isn't a great way to start. As we guessed, he begins to look for someone from Westeros, hoping against hope there will be Tysha. Of course, he is not. Yet Tyrion says, she'll do anyway. So again, that isn't a ringing endorsement from him either. But we also see how thin the Tysha pretense was. It was a lie to Halden as much as it was a lie to himself. He wants to pretend he's on a noble, romantic mission to find the love that was stolen from him, but when it comes down to it, he just wants to have sex with someone. Sexual frustration, the desire to control something in his life, just having a good experience after what he's been through lately, maybe even some of the comfort and reassurance in his self-worth that Shay used to offer. These are likely all strong elements, but in the end, it comes down to him finding the closest thing he can to Taisha and going forward with it. The girl was looking at his noseless face with revulsion in her eyes. This quote is key. It sets the tone for the entire meeting. Shay, who he, amazingly, this astounds me, doesn't think of once in this entire passage, did an incredibly good job of making him feel good about himself and his body. But then she was older and also not a slave. This girl was merely being honest. And she's not even saying anything, it's just a look. But we know how much this matters to Tyrion. He's already been explored in this book how women, and sex workers especially, look at him and how he feels the need to repay them if it is revulsion. How he goes too far the other way and wants to play that monster role that they place him in. We saw it already with him making the little girl cry when he stuck his tongue out and made a face. This is the exact same thing, but on a larger, much more painful scale. As if we need a confirmation, once they are alone in the girl's room, Tyrion actually says, Have you bedded a monster before? Now's as good a time as any. Out of your clothes and onto your back, if it please you, or not. <sighs> Lines to read out don't come more uncomfortable than that, if I'm honest. 
So the first part, he wants to be the monster. He wants to be what they see him as, as some kind of defence. He believes he's wrapping himself in his own armour, like his old advice goes. If you play the part, then it can't hurt you. But look at how twisted that defence has become. Tyrion is relishing the part of the monster, the thing to be reviled and afraid of. He's choosing to add to this girl's unenjoyment of this act, which he then doubles down on with the end of the quote. He does not care whether she is pleased. He does not care whether she wants this. He's going to do it anyway. So again, we have to call it rape. Tyrion is no stranger to sex workers, and though we've never seen him with any except Shay, I think most of us would assume he's never acted like this with any of them before, at least we're hoping. He's never been so acutely aware of their non-consent, and yet not only chosen to ignore it, but play on it and worsen it. So why the change now? It could be some unconscious hatred of sex workers now, based on what happened to Shay, which is completely misplaced because she did nothing wrong, but it would make sense. It can be anger that this girl is not Taisha. Or it can be the inclusion of both, wrapped up in everything that happened at the end of Storm, highlighted by near-death experience and the culmination of everything we've been saying in his first five chapters. Tyrion hates the world, hates everyone in it, is an incredibly angry and sad man, and also very clearly hates himself. I don't think any of that can be argued. Yet, none of it excuses why he is acting this way to someone, not in the slightest. So the act itself comes, and afterwards, Tyrion instantly admits that he knows how wrong this was. He rolled off, feeling more ashamed than sated. This was a mistake. What a wretched creature I've become. Tyrion knows this is bad. He knows he's acted wrong and that this poor girl has suffered because of him. Top of that, we get the extra reminder of her horrible existence as a slave in general, thanks to the scars on her back. And then Tyrion makes it even worse with this. This girl is as good as dead. I've just fucked a corpse. Even her eyes look dead. She does not even have the strength to loathe me. One of the worst parts of all of this is Tyrion's treatment of the girl as a body and nothing more. An empty vessel to be used and then discarded. He knows there is a soul in there that is hurt, that hates this, that is suffering, but insists on painting her as empty and dead. She is just a corpse. Is that in order to make himself feel better about what he just did, or is it just an observation? Either way, Tyrion reacts to how awful he's just been by immediately trying to drown himself in wine. Even this act is selfish. He's trying to run away. He's hurt someone, he's acted evilly, and instead of owning up to it or dealing with the consequences, or even trying to maybe improve her immediate circumstances in some way, he tries to run into drunkenness, leave his body or black out so that he doesn't have to deal with her or himself. It is beyond cowardly. Leave her there scared and unhappy. That doesn't matter because I'll be drunk and it won't hurt me. So that to me is despicable. And you know things are dark whenever he brings up Joffrey. Don't think that's a surprise to anyone. The escape plan doesn't work though. He's still very much present as he vomits upon her carpet, causing the girl to cry out. Tyrion is still self-aware enough to realise that she will be blamed, not him. She'll probably add some more scars to her back. So he shows off his self-hatred again by proposing that she cut off his head and take it to King's Landing so that he's at least good for something. But she doesn't understand. And here's where things get much, much worse. We've just laid out the evidence for Tyrion being aware of what he's doing. He said the monster thing. He noted her revulsion. He said he didn't care if it pleased her or not. And then after the fact, he admitted it was wrong, that he sunk low. He has said he's ashamed for that and the carpet as well. He is fully aware of his situation and more importantly, her situation and how it feels for her, and then he does it again anyway. He rapes her a second time. Even if you were going to try and defend the first time, which you really shouldn't, this one has no chance. Tyrion is aware of all of that and makes the conscious case that he doesn't care. He is bothered about his own satisfaction and the off chance that this might make him feel better. He has decided he does not care about her. If she's a corpse anyway, then why does it matter if he hurts her, he basically says. She does not matter as a person or human being, he basically shouts. And to put the nail in the coffin, he throws her clothing at the door and lets her flee from him without further thought for her feelings or what he's done. <sighs> well, so that's just uh, very, very emotional and hard to deal with. I do not like doing this bit. 
I think I've made it clear that this is an evil act that should not really be forgotten or just passed over, and yet, well, I want to move on at least just for this little chapter, as we can make ourselves feel at least a little better in Tyrion getting some immediate karmic comeuppance, even if that doesn't make up for anything, and definitely doesn't actually help the poor girl we just raped, who should really be receiving more of our focus and concern than Tyrion does. Tyrion nearly sleeps, but that holds terrors for him as well, so he stumbles out, again admitting his own self-hatred on how he thinks he deserves to be flayed. Downstairs, he is throwing coins at the owner for the carpet when someone says imp from behind him. Tyrion looks into the shadow and shows more discern for the poor girl upstairs by thinking he would have much preferred this new one over freckles, he calls her. <laughs> you think it's done, you think it's over, and it just keeps getting worse. Could he possibly be any more disrespectful to this poor woman or just, just uncaring? I don't want to talk about it anymore. Later, Tyrion will mock the fact that this new girl looks a lot like Daenerys, given the man whose lap she has sat on, completely ignoring that he tried very much to do the exact same thing with Tysha, but it failed. But what about this man? This man whose identity we can guess when George tells us there is hair sprouting from his knuckles. And if that's not enough, the bear on his surcoat confirms it. Yes, this chapter isn't bad enough. We also have to put up with Jorah fucking Mormont returning to the story. Come on, George, like... Ugh. It's a long chapter, don't end it this way. But no, apparently he does. Tyrion, even in his drunken state, recognises the danger and tries to buy his way out of it. But Jorah Mormont will tell you he's not a man to be bought. Pah, alright, sure, okay. And especially not when he's just locked upon the one potential key to get him back to his heart's desire in Daenerys. Jorah mixes no words and wastes no time in coming straight over and grabbing Tyrion. And what do you mean to do with me? Deliver you, the knight said, to the queen. Later, we'll see that Tyrion mistakes these words for evidence that he's headed back to King's Landing to finally face his worst enemy and have his life ended by Cersei. But we readers already know that is not the case at all. He's going the other way, further east, to the queen he was supposed to be meeting anyway, ironically, if his plan with Young Griff hadn't worked. So as we can guess, this is the end of Tyrion's time aboard the Shy Maid, and a new chapter of his journey is opening. One he's going to like a lot less, as rereaders can definitely confirm. Yet slowly, very slowly, and definitely not immediately, Tyrion will become slightly better in some ways. Not all, but some. Is that because he hits absolute rock bottom here? Perhaps. But again, that's not much help to the girl that he abused, is it? Anyway, I think that's enough talk about Tyrion 6, but how do we wrap up a chapter as huge and diverse as that? Like I said at the beginning, to call it one of the most important chapters in the book, or even the series, is no understatement. Rarely do we get a single chapter that hits on so many elements of the reading experience of A Song of Ice and Fire. We have a huge hinge point for the overall plot, almost as big as they come in the conversation with young Griff. There's copious world building in Selhoris, further world building in the Daenerys talk and the Zora High talk, and then one of the greatest character study moments provided to us, all quickly wrapped up with a second plot change and a cliffhanger, even if this one pales in comparison to the young Griff stuff, because Tyrion is still going to go the same way. Then again, this ensures that he does go east, not west with young Griff, it throws him into the world of slavery, and eventually a sellsword company, and it puts him in the general vicinity of Danny. And maybe, most importantly for him personally, it puts him on the path to Penny. And we know how important she is to his development. So a tough chapter, truly, but one bursting with content. Let's leave that one there. Instead, let's move on to a chapter that we're going to find a lot more enjoyable, even if it has difficulties in itself. That's with Daenerys. So let's go straight on to Daenerys 4. As I said at the beginning, this is a very, very similar chapter to John's in that we're going to see Danny yet again be the queen be the mother be the carer that she is she's going to protect her people her children even though she's going to blame herself for all their troubles along the way and really what we're going to get in Danny for 
is the greatest weight, the greatest crush of all these factors of marine and politics and what she needs to do really, really start to come down on her and how she reacts to that. It's going to come in several different forms and via several different people. And I'm glad to say Danny, instead of just letting herself be crushed, reacts strongly, at least in most cases. I don't want to give anything away too much, but I think you'll be able to tell as we go through those strong John shades and how these two really are just completely mirroring each other, both in their care and their objectives and how they handle the stress and the weight and most important of all, duty. Let's not delay any further. I know that was a bit of a tough chapter to get through just then, so let's head straight into it, shall we? Daenerys 4 starts out with more demands of the day. It's always meetings, 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 duty, duty, duty of this life. Last time it was Zaro talking about the coming war. This time it is our first actual meeting with Galaza Galare talking about the within again, all the problems inside Marine. Up to this point, Galaza has only been mentioned sparingly in Danny's first chapter, warning about how the Tokar must be kept and worn, and all these traditions must be observed to keep the peace, etc. So Daenerys very much associates the woman with the floppy ears that she must always wear. Galaza might describe herself as the optics woman, but to Danny, she's a weight that must be carried, an unfortunate part of this existence that she could do without if she were choosing. And that's with the very light interaction she's had with her so far. This one we get today, much more weighty. Rereaders know the Green Grace's demands might start simple and polite enough, but she's going to keep pushing and pushing with Daenerys, seeing what she can get from her and how much ground Danny is willing to give. As it turns out, she'll give quite a lot in the mission to try and win Marine's obedience, if not love. Is Danny more willing to give this ground because she's dealing with a woman for once instead of the brash men she's used to? I'd definitely be willing to give the idea some thought. How many women of power has Daenerys ever actually interacted with? There was the Doshkaleen a long, long time ago, but since then, there's really not many. So perhaps she's just happy to have someone use gentle words and logical persuasion for once, instead of bullying arrogance or attempted charms. Either way, while that might be refreshing early on, the amount of weight Galaza puts into Danny's arms is only going to increase as the book goes until she can no longer bear it. I said back at the beginning of the Marine arc that I wasn't going to guess who the specific harpy was each time we meet a candidate because simply, I don't know. If you do know, please tell me. I've no idea if it's Galaza Galare pulling the strings and controlling things, and I likely wouldn't be able to give well thought out evidence if I did. I can tell you, my gut says she's a bad guy, if you want to use that term, and is working against Daenerys in one way or the other. Is that because she's a harpy, or just because she's taking advantage of the situation to use her? I can't tell you, but that's my gut feeling, that I don't like her. And the way she takes advantage of Daenerys through this book, and in this chapter, really does get to me. But perhaps you have a different opinion. If so, let me know. Either way, the beginning of the chapter opens with the opposite of Danny's previous. You'll remember in Danny 3, the opening scene was of her watching an incredibly erotic and graphic dance of sexual slaves. This time, we have the complete opposite of one old woman surrounded by children, veiled in white and armoured in their innocence. So the two beginnings could hardly be more different. The political dance, the schmoozing, begins immediately. It's all smiles and handshakes and eating together. All the usual stuff you have to do as a politician. We have a reminder that Daenerys is surrounded by hostages now, as Galaza says hello to her child cousins, and we get a brief description of the Green Grace herself, one that points us towards dignity, wisdom, and, well, grace. Before Galaza's question about Danny's sleep quality of late gives us an update on the actual war situation outside the walls. Here we build off the ending of Danny Free and the promise of war. Zaro was clearly not joking, as three caffeine galleys sailed up the Skahazadan, yeah, I haven't, I haven't had to say that for a while, in the darkness and avoided Marine's defences on the way. They did not come to kill this time, but to choke, as Danny notes that Calf is trying to cut off the river in the same way that the bay has been closed to them. 
Not only that, but they have those allies from New Geese and Talos that we just learned about now helping the Carthine. So the feeling of loneliness and enemies on all sides has only increased, especially when Danny reveals the envoy she sent to Mantaris came back in head form only. So we still know nothing of this city of monsters, but they are living up to their reputation currently. And Talos also replied by naming her a horse. So again, we have some chapter sequencing with what we spoke about while Tyrion is playing Savas against Quavo. There has to be some kind of focus on her being a woman, unfortunately. Some degradation of that fact in their insults, because again, this is the stupid society we are dealing with. The news, the river might be sealed, is pretty dire. From our previous day in chapters, we know that Marine has no real resources in terms of production or food. If that river is sealed, it means no food is coming that way. No new produce for buying and selling in the markets, which will likely drive more people into starvation and property. The economy is going to get even worse. And also, it's that much harder to get allies to the city, should any materialise. And what if they begin using that position to poison the water supplies? I'd have to check on the logistics and that, but certainly a possibility. Marine is in a bad situation, but it could become so very much worse quite quickly if Carth are successful here. So Danny has offered up all that information quite freely here right at the beginning of the meeting. I suppose there's an argument that she should maybe be a bit more guarded with this kind of thing, seeing as it puts her on the back foot negotiation-wise. But firstly, I don't think Danny is quite aware of how much of a negotiation these meetings with Galaza will be, and this information likely isn't going to be kept secret for very long anyway. On the off chance, Danny almost jokingly asks for some divine assistance to help drive their enemies away, because that solution seems as likely as any right now. Galaza nods and smiles and says, yeah, sure thing. But she also presses the negative vibe by bringing up the troubles happening within the walls. Yes, it's inside and outside. That's never left Danny for yet. Unfortunately, another three freed women were raped and murdered in the night. And Danny claiming the fort leaves a bitter taste in her mouth is more than an understatement. That's a very tough sentence to read, unfortunately, and really does raise the bile when thinking on the situation Marine and what these harpies do to innocent people who are just even associated with Daenerys. So combining that awful thought with Galaza looking Danny in the eye and saying, or so I've been told, obviously makes us suspicious and wondering if she was told by people that she supported, she helped do it, or maybe even ordered them to do it. It definitely doesn't cast her in the best light. I'm also assuming that these women, these weavers, were the ones referenced in Danny 1, the ones who were former slaves to Grazdangale, cousin to the woman sitting in front of Danny, whom she denied recompense to, you might remember. Yeah, that fits just a little too well for my taste. Again, remember, in that first chapter, Danny thinks of Grazdan being Galaza's cousin, and therefore she needs to keep him sweet. But then she actually hears what he has to say, and how he thinks about these slaves and their worth, and she just goes completely against that. So it would seem that he's taken his revenge. And again, I say it's just too neat that cousin Galaza is here to ask about this specific murderous occasion. Obviously, Danny cannot openly accuse Grazdan, not of Galaza being right in front of her, and her being such an important figure in Marine, but maybe she thinks that as well. Even ignoring the source or reason for these crimes, we can see how much it is weighing on Danny. People are being killed and raped in the cruelest of ways because of her and what she's doing. At least that's how she sees it. And for such a saver of people, for someone who's so empathetic and just caring and good in general, this is really the very worst of situations. Galaza is quick to point out that Danny has not reacted to the killings by harming any of her child hostages, as she said she would. That might be her entire reason for being here, to make sure her younger cousins and the other children are all fine. Perhaps that is why she's brought these young, white-robed girls to guilt Danny into staying her hand. It seems the harm of children was a risk the harpies were willing to take either way, and apparently they must be confident that Daenerys will continue to refuse crossing that line. It's evil taking advantage of the good, of course. Again, Danny tries to make a joke of proceedings, likely because she desperately needs some relief from the weight, but, well, I'll read you the quote. The priestess did not smile. The shave pate would feed them to your dragons, it is said. A life for a life. 
For every brazen beast cut down, he would have a child die. So this, as much as anything, convinces me one of the principal reasons for Galaza being here is to ascertain the likelihood of Danny executing her hostages and whether it is her or Skahaz calling the shots on the subject. Her not smiling really just sets off an alarm of how important this is to her and she's putting out the suggestions of what might happen to them to see how Danny reacts and whether that is true. We also again see how the rumours of child-eating dragons are working against Danny. She tried to keep that under wraps but it's basically being traded as fact now, it's out there. That leads Danny into remembering her morning conversation with Skahaz about the hostages and how they are pretty useless if you're never going to do anything with them. Which is true, Danny's bluff has been called and she's been found wanting, so the harpies will only become bolder now. They've backed her further into a corner, the hope that the threat would be enough has failed. And Danny knows that, but to her it is secondary. Killing innocent children is pretty much the worst possible crime. It's a worse outcome than even these other terrible rapes and killings in the streets as hard as it is to put up with that. It's worse even than losing completely. Danny will not cross that line as she relays to Galaza Galaire, likely giving the older woman a sigh of relief. Danny saying that she refuses to become a butcher queen gives Galaza a great opening to talk about the butcher king and the goings on in Astapor, again piling up all of the negatives on Daenerys before the proposal she's going to make in a moment. It's superb conversation structure as we've seen lately from Tyrion and Zaro in the same vein. So we get another update, this time away from the city but no less dire. King Cleon is dead, betrayed by his own men on the eve of battle. A second Cleon materialised and ruled for eight days before also being killed, and that killer currently rules, calling himself King Cutthroat with his queen whore beside him. Everyone is fighting everyone else now in the streets of Astapor, while the Yunkai basically wait outside and watch. So this is bad for a couple of reasons. One, Danny has to feel guilt again over what has happened to the city since her intervention and what she felt was a good thing to do, which it was. Astapor would be in a bad situation anyway, just having to battle Yunkai in the first place, but this constant changing of leadership and bad leadership at that is going to result in absolute chaos for everybody, as we will see next week in Quentin's second chapter. Astapor is a madhouse, basically. It's another hell on earth, even worse than what we saw before, and not so different to what we saw at Moat Kaelin earlier today, except with a civilian population, so that does make it worse in one way. Danny is aware of all that, aware of the pain going on for thousands of people and the terrible circumstances, and aware that she turned down the option to provide aid in her last chapter but it's also bad for Marine. If Astapor is basically beating themselves within the walls, it not only means an easy victory for Yunkai, but a quick victory for Yunkai. And where are all those Yunkish soldiers going to go as soon as they are finished there? That's right, straight to Danny's doorstep, straight to Marine. Cleon the Great isn't someone Danny wanted as an ally, but at least there was someone out there not actively against you for once. Now they are gone, and the enemies that they were keeping busy can now come and bother you instead. So Galaza has built up a pretty good case of how bad Marine's situation is, as if any reminding was needed, and can now move on to her proposal. Get married. Let someone share your burdens. No, he might not provide quick and easy answers and just wipe it all away, but it is better than your current situation, and if you make the correct choice, you can at least solve one problem in your inner wars against the Miranese. And you know Galaza cuts right to the bone of it with this quote. Danny asks, can he clap his hands and break the siege of Astapor? Can he put food in the bellies of my children and bring peace back to my streets? Can you? The Green Grace asked. That in itself is enough of an argument to budge Daenerys. She is currently not protecting her people or providing them of peace, so why wouldn't she take the chance to do just that? But Galaza also makes a superb point that much of Marine, some of them even former slaves, see Daenerys as an outsider and a conqueror, someone who has come and barged her way into their lives uninvited to make everything worse and always will see it that way. We know Daenerys, and we know the unfairness of that statement, but we have spoken about how this looks to the people of Marine, why some people are acting the way they do, and it's important to acknowledge that side of the argument as well, however much we might wish it untrue. 
Unfortunately, this will likely always be a part of Danny's life. Even if she gets back to Westeros, where her family does have a history and she does have a claim, there will always be those who still see her as an outsider, a foreigner who doesn't belong. This is just part of her tragedy. She has no home to really be from, which is very, very sad. Galaza ends this part of her argument with what could be construed as a threat. Basically, you have to marry or this is all going to end up with blood and fire and not in your favour. Daenerys has no surprise that Galaza is championing his Dar Zolarak as Danny's potential husband, explaining some of the earlier focus we had with him. We're treated to some further explanation of why House Kandak is different to House Lorak, how both families have their famous ancestors twisting back through time, heroes and legends and stories the same as anywhere else but completely unfamiliar to Danny. It's a very effective backup to what Galaza has just said about Danny being a stranger. She doesn't know the differences between the houses. She doesn't know the tales of Hazrak the Handsome. She doesn't know all the intricacies, and she never will, at least not about joining herself to someone who would know, or given a lot, lot, lot more time, which she doesn't really have. And again, this spreads further than Marine. Danny is always going to have some level of this problem as long as she's moving around in the world. Even in Westeros, where the effect would theoretically be at its lowest, she'd still be on the back foot compared to everyone else. Is she going to know about the nature of the phrase and what they did at the Red Wedding? How much is she aware of Bracken versus Blackwood? Or even more basic things like stories of Garth the Greenhand, or why the North loved the Starks so much? It seems obvious to us, because we've been reading about it for four books. But how much focus did Viserys give things like that? Do you really trust him as a competent, wide-ranging teacher? Because I don't. Now, Danny can learn those sorts of things much easier there than here in Marine, and time can do a lot to make up for the original deficit, but it'll still be an issue originally, especially in terms of known recent history and why some people act a specific way to other people, etc, etc. That's why someone like Tyrion would be so useful to her. Daenerys just doesn't have access to the information that we do, and it's easy to forget that, so we should highlight it here. Galaza says no, Hisdar can't offer you an army, but his history will be weapon enough. His prestige is suitable for healing Marine and dealing with outside enemies like Yunkai. On top of that, once you have a son, he will be the best of both worlds and everybody will be happy. Perhaps you subscribe to the argument that it was his dad that arranged the poison locusts, or maybe Galaza herself, and if so, I can certainly see how you got there. There is a plain argument to be made that his dad never intended to get Danny with child and was going to have her killed either way and maybe just saw her as a stepping stone to the crown. That's more than possible, but even if we take Galaza at her word here, Danny privately thinks that there's no chance of a child for her and his dart anyway. But this isn't about her potential being a physical mother, but her being a mother already. Daenerys Targaryen had other children, tens of thousands who had hailed her as their mother when she broke their chains. She thought of Starwalk's shield, of Masande's brother, of the woman Rylona Ree who had played the harp so beautifully. No marriage would ever bring them back to life, but if her husband could help end the slaughter, then she owed it to her dead to marry. This is a beautiful short little paragraph that paints Daenerys as every bit a queen as Jon's earlier chapter painted him a king. No, she doesn't get to go and make a cool speech to starving wildlings, but it comes down to the same thing even if it is done privately in her own head. Do what's best for the people who look up to her, the ones still living and the ones who have died because of their ties to her. If she can protect them and honour them in any way, she's more than likely going to do it. But there are political considerations here too. If she takes his dad, does she lose Skahaz? She's not fond of the man's personality, but he is incredibly useful and has seemed loyal so far. But in terms of optics, nowhere near the fit his dad is. So Danny gives a few more inches of the ground by not immediately turning down the offer this time and instead asking what his dad thinks of all this. It turns out Galaza was so confident in her argument that she brought his dad along to talk to Danny in this eventuality. If the situation were different, perhaps Daenerys would express her anger at this kind of rudeness and arrogance or presumption. But as it is, she keeps quiet and accepts having a further meeting. So Galaza departs with the same smiles and manners with which she arrived, and his dart enters. His face is actually pretty solemn, no easy smiles for him this time. Perhaps he does not want to appear as if this is a foregone conclusion, and therefore muck the whole deal up. 
Rereaders know how much he wants to become king, so you know he's measuring every little detail that he can. And he starts off on the right foot. He doesn't come in demanding anything for the fighter pits, he isn't being cocky or arrogant in the slightest. Even his over-the-top compliments are landing today. Critically, he doesn't oversell his ability to make all her problems disappear. That would be too suspicious and also demand a lot of production on his part. He just echoes what Galarza said in that he can help with certain aspects of her problems thanks to his history, friends and his money. He can help knit Marine back together. Even that is slightly suspicious though, so Danny asks him straight out if he is one of the sons of the harpy. And it isn't his dar saying no that saves him here, it's his answering no, he would not admit it even if he were. This is a semi-honesty that seems to break through to Daenerys. His further admission that if he were submitted to Skahaz's torture, he would surely confess to anything and everything because that's what torture does. That's also pretty brilliant from him. We know the kind of falsehoods extreme torture can bring out. We've seen it in Feast with Cersei. We've seen it in Fire and Blood. On top of that, it gives him an extra layer of protection if he were ever tortured for whatever reason, and that can then be given as the explanation instead of actual guilt. So pretty clever from him. His dad's honesty keeps doing him favours as he admits he definitely wouldn't mind wearing a crown. But he also mixes that in with knowing his audience as he claims he wants to protect his own people in the same way she wants to protect hers. Rereaders might have something to say about that, but for the moment it's working. She even thinks that was a good answer and an honest one. We know Danny is being honest as she lists through how she has never sought war, only in what is rightfully enslaved. But his dad goes on to show how he also has an intelligent mind as he echoes what we've been saying about Danny's damage to the economic system of the continent and why they all want her dead. Danny, being as awesome as she is, is done with tiptoeing around that issue. Let them come. In me, they shall find a sterner foe than Cleon. I would sooner perish fighting than return my children to bondage. So it's the motherhood vibe again. Her children are still the bottom line, the ultimate. Nothing matters in comparison. This next part is critical. Daenerys is basically declaring, fine, let's go all in. If they want to fight, we'll fight, even if it means doom for us all. So if his diet is going to drag her back from that abyss, he needs to be exact in the alternative that he offers. It can't be too good to be true, but it can't be complete rubbish either. So he lays it on the line. The current freedman that Daenerys has accrued so far can remain as such. And we can again argue he's saying this in bad faith and was intending to go back on it later, or that he's already been negotiating with the Yunkai. But he also says the wars can stop if... Daenerys agrees to cut her losses and allow the slave trade to return to Yunkai, and therefore the production flow would be restored to the rest of the continent too. In fact, Yunkai would probably like this. They'd be getting an almost complete market share, wouldn't they, you'd think? I think it says something about how far beaten down Danny is, just how quickly she accepts this idea in her own mind, as well as how good Galaza and the others are at their jobs. No more blood need flow, says Hisdar. Save for the blood of those slaves, the Yunkai will trade and train, Danny said, but she recognised the truth in his words even so. It may be that this is the best end we can hope for. Is this what Danny wants? No, of course not. Generations upon generations, millions upon millions of people submitted to slavery and abuse as the years and decades roll on. She doesn't want that for anybody, but it does have the capability to save her current children, the ones she's just said she owes something to, the ones she wants to protect. So does that include conceding on her own moral standpoint, her mission objective? Maybe it does. If she loses, then those generations of slaves will still come and her own freedmen will join them. So saving some is better than none, right? She decides to change the topic of conversation slightly. We're talking about marriage here. Should we not also talk of love? His dart likely earns himself some more brownie points by continuing to be straight up. This marriage does not require love. Physical and sexual desire? Sure, we've got that going for you, so... Score, I guess. Great. But his dart is here because he believes this is the best for Marine, that he and Danny can lead the city into a new and better age. You can see Daenerys almost trying to persuade herself that this is a good idea. It will save people, it will protect her children, and that's top objective, so go on, just imagine it a little bit. What would it be like? He's decent looking, maybe this would work. 
but try as she might, Daenerys is not a 100% politician or ruler. That is part of her, true, but it's not the whole. Some of her is still a young, passionate woman, still going through that sexual awakening that we spoke about in previous chapters. And much of her is, like I say, passion and heart and fire. So can that side of things be satisfied also with this deal? She decides to find out by commanding his dar to kiss her. His response of kissing her fingers says a lot on its own, but his actual kiss on her lips is just as barren and does nothing for her. He does not want it, and neither does she, as his feeble asking of whether he should do it again tells us. Thus, she declares, I do not love you. Clearly, this is a very, very large part of the deal for Danny, as it should be. But in response, Hisdar shrugs. I think what he would like to say is, so? So what? I don't care. Does that matter when we're talking about stopping a war and saving our entire city? But he keeps his mask on for now, saying, well, who knows, maybe you will one day. Even if it's clear to us, it doesn't matter to him whether it does or doesn't. But it matters to Danny. Of course it does. She's a human being, a wonderful human being, who deserves to feel passion and love and all these things that she is so often denied. We definitely want that for her at some point. And the possibility of her having to give it up because of this job that she doesn't even really want and because she's being manipulated is damn annoying to read. Perhaps the most telling part is when she brings up Westeros. Okay, we marry now, but what happens when I eventually want to go home and claim my birthright? Are you coming along for that ride too? And here we really get to see how little his dog cares, or perhaps that he really was planning to get rid of her anyway, when he basically has no answer for her, and just says, well, we'll cross that line when we come to it, that's the best he can come up with. So it seems like Danny is really on the back foot here. There's not many options whatsoever, everything is in a bad way, so it's kind of looking like she's just going to crumble and agree, despite the lack of emotion behind it all. But luckily, she rallies here. If it's going to end up with this thing that she really doesn't want, then we're at least going to have some aspects of it delivered my way. You are going to have to woo me, his Lazodorak. Not with magic swords or slain beasts or treasures, nice as that would be. You will have to do a great deed, but as you've just pointed out, it's going to have to relate to our actual situation. Hence, we get this quote. Peace is my desire. You say that you can help me end the nightly slaughter in my streets. I say, do it. Put an end to this shadow war, my lord. That is your quest. Give me 90 days and 90 nights without a murder. I know know that you are worthy of a throne. This is an excellent passage we have to take our hats off to Danny for. As close as it seemed that she was just going to cave, she's actually stood up for herself by not only showing she's not an absolute pushover, but also made the smart political choice. His dart is claiming he can do all these things for her. Well, let's see some evidence. Put your cards on the table. And it even provides a semi-win-win situation. If he comes through, great. I've just had three months without any of my beloved children being murdered and a city at peace. If he fails, then at least I have an acceptable out for this marriage that I don't want to be a part of anyway. And she doesn't even promise that she'll still definitely marry him. So it's some brilliant thinking on her part. A play from an astute politician and a strong woman refusing to be completely manipulated at the same time. Immediately, she begins thinking of the ramifications right here and now, long before the 90 days. There's lost approval of Skahaz, but then raised with Resnak. But she kind of wanted to be the other way round. Skahaz provides more, and she at least trusts him more than Resnak, so we've got it a little bit backward. But let's still just take this as a semi-win. So let's rush his dart off stage, and let Sir Barristan Selmy swoop in after the fact, as he likes to do. Are you happy for me, sir? If that is your command, your grace. This is almost an exact replication of when she asked if Hisdar loved her. It's got to be annoying to have people answer you this way all the time. It turns out only to be a front by Barristan anyway, because as soon as Danny starts explaining why she would agree such a thing, the avoidance of war, the saving of people, he is asking if he can speak frankly anyway. He has a third choice for her, and like with both Hisdar and Galaza, Danny can already guess what it is. Westeros. While Barristan says he'll go wherever she does, he also believes her place is back in the Seven Kingdoms, and this marriage will not only delay her going there, but hinder her once she does, for Westeros will never accept Hisdar as their king. And you've got to give it to him, that is absolutely true. There is zero way that the nobility of Westeros would ever have that. 
they seem even more ignorant and arrogant about the Far East than the associate are about them. They'd probably even choose terrible Cersei over this option for the pure fact that they know who she is. So it's up to Danny to put into words what we and she have already been saying in this chapter. The Myronese view her as one thing alone and something else once she's combined with Hisdar. So Galaza and Hisdar definitely have worked their magic and while they are definitely manipulative, there are elements of truth in this. Barry counters by saying, why even waste your time persuading these people to love you when you could just go home? In Westeros, you'll be the lost child who returns to gladden her father's heart. Your people will cheer when you ride by and all good men will love you. Now we know Sir Barry is being genuine, as in this is what he actually believes, but this is still very much the best case scenario and ignoring a lot of reality. There will be people who cheer and love and are glad the Targaryens are returning. We've seen the evidence of that in former pages, but it is by no means a universal feeling. The opposite exists for a lot of people too. But even forgetting that, we can't deal with Westeros before we deal with Marine. We are currently sitting in one and not the other. Lingering here will never bring it any closer. The sooner we take our leave of this place, I know, I do. Danny did not know how to make him see. She wanted Westeros as much as he did, but first she must heal Marine. You get the sense of frustration building in Danny here. She knows Barristan cares for her, he's trying to give good counsel, and again genuinely thinks he's helping. But she's having to repeat herself over and over, not so different to how John feels about Burr Marsh, even if there's much better vibes here. She expands on how a caveat of 90 days buys both time and options, and even when Barristan interrupts, she has an answer ready. And if he does fail, what will your grace do then? Her duty. The word felt cold upon her tongue. As if we couldn't rip that line straight from a John chapter 2. This is the constant for both of them. This is what it always comes down to. The chapter takes a bit of a turn into the unexpected here as we get a flash in the pan history lesson from Barristan, even though we should probably expect that by now because it does come up a lot. Daenerys wants to know about the previous marriages in her family and how many of them were based on passion and love and how many on duty. She begins with her brother Rhaegar and though Barristan is complimentary of both him and Elia Martell, he can only summon the word fond, which tells Danny everything she needs to know. She's trying to use Rhaegar as an argument for what she's currently doing. If he can do it, so can I, type of thing. So Barristan counters with the fact there is also zero fondness between Aerys and Rhaella, her mother and father, and the realm paid dearly for it, he says. Danny wants to know the reasons behind that, but let's just pump the brakes a little bit, because I believe Barry to be off base here. The way he phrases it suggests that Rhaella had a part in all the woes of the realm to come because of the Mad King, which we already know about and don't have to dive into here. True, he then puts the blame on their father, King Jaehaerys II, ordering to do so with no thought of their own happiness, but I find it hard to attribute any of the realm's woes or troubles, or Aerys's own problems, with the fact that Rhaella did not love him as a husband. The realm suffered, and Rhaella herself definitely suffered, because Aerys was a violent, evil madman. It was not her not being in love with him that drove him that way, and even if it did, she's not responsible with how he reacts to her feelings. So though I think I can see what Barristan is trying to say, in that everyone would have been better off if they'd just been allowed to marry who they actually wanted to, and coincidentally, it would have really helped the Targaryens out by the time Robert came around if both Aerys and Rhaella had respectively married into other great or large houses so that a rebellion wouldn't have been so easy to kick off in the first place. And while there is truth in said claim, the way he says it isn't really accurate. Normally, when Danny starts asking questions, it is either about her brother or maybe one generation up in her father. But this time, we go one further, as I mentioned, to Jaehaerys, her grandfather, and his brother, Prince Duncan. We go to Jenny of Oldstones and to the woods witch that she brought to court with her. So here are some connections we probably didn't expect to be making in this chapter here, all the way over Marine. Rereaders with the benefit of the world book, etc., would be able to piece this together much more easily, but even first-timers might remember a small woman that Aya once encountered back in Storm. 
I think it was up on High Heart. So the idea that there's someone living out there with further information on all this is always pretty cool. Unfortunately, the explanation stops there when Barristan mentions Summerhall. Daenerys might not know some parts of Targaryen history, but she knows that part, and she doesn't want to discuss anything so Doom-related right now. So Barristan is all set to leave, until he happens to remember that someone came calling for Daenerys. Oh yeah, yeah, it must have uh, slipped my mind, yeah. Definitely wasn't holding back the information on purpose just to have another day with Daenerys not being around this guy. No, 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 no way. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. But if he was, he obviously fails because he can't bear to leave knowing that he purposefully held back the information that Daryn Harris has returned. Which is also a bit of a dick move from Barry on the sly. Again, we understand why. It might even be the correct choice, but this woman needs a win right now, and Dari returning is probably going to represent that to her. And also, you know, it's her choice. It's as much a surprise to Daenerys as it is to us. She knew he was on his way, but now he's actually here. He's actually waiting for her. She's so excited she can barely talk. She has to get ready. She has to sort her clothes. She needs her handmaidens to dress. And while none of her problems have actually disappeared, and we've just had half a chapter where we've been reminded of them and the ever-present weight of duty, it is endearing to get half a page of Daenerys just being allowed to feel some normal emotions and some normal things that happen to normal people. The excitement and trepidation of seeing someone you really like and are attracted to. How often has she allowed that kind of normalcy? Not often, not often at all, so enjoy it while you can. They meet on the terrace, under the moon and stars. Nice job, George, for providing such a setting. And there he comes, Darren Harris, swaggering back into the story. I feel like it's impossible to use any other verb or description for how this guy walks. Danny tells us that he even seems to swagger standing still, and that's quite the apt description it really is. Not content with that, George reminds us of his more than unique look, while Daenerys bravely tries to keep things political and professional, even while privately admitting how much she has missed him. Dario does his best to break that shell, gently tiding her for not seeing him straight away, naming her as his only need and his desire to feast upon her beauty. If the Song of Ice and Fire was set in another time, Danny may well have broken her wrist from how quickly she'd need to fan herself down from this onslaught of words. The girl in her wanted to kiss him so much it hurt, but the queen in her knew that would be folly. So while it is again wonderful to see these kind of feelings exist in her heart after so much difficulty, she still has to war between these two identities, and the Queen Persona is still managing to grip onto the top step, probably just hanging on by mere fingers. So Dario accepts, shrugging as Hisdar did earlier, and gives us some of his story and what the Stormcrows have been up to. For the most part, it's been a success. Aside from having to kill two of his sergeants, Dario even managed to recruit some of the long lances that they faced in the field. Danny worries here that they will be spies, but he ascertains that this is impossible in what is some clear, ironic serve for Quentin's latest storylines and Dario not being so eagle-eyed as he claims. The overall mission, like I say, was a success. Lazarine will send food by barge and caravan, although, as we established at the beginning, only half of that is going to get here now thanks to the river being closed, and unfortunately it's the slower half. Dario does not consider the caffeine a problem, though. They will be remedied by a quick look at the dragons, he says, but that is a subject that Daenerys nimbly sidesteps. Though we do get a quick update that Drogon has been sighted roaming far across the Dothraki Sea, the Viserion has snapped a chain, and that the door to their pit is growing hotter and hotter and hotter. So that provides some excellent tension for those of us who really want to see them burst out of there and have the dragons finally back on our page. Instead of that, Danny points the conversation back to war, and Astapor specifically. Dario knows of that, and claims matters are so bad that they are eating one another in the Red City. So another cannibalism example for our checklist, and another part of how awful Astapor has become. Danny then switches to the problems of Marine, likely glad to just get it off her chest and maybe hear a fresh voice or solution. To Dario, that solution is simple. Attack, kill, destroy. Danny doesn't focus on that idea too long, as he next suggests that she fall into his bed, 
and now that fan really is working overtime as she admits to herself how much she wants him and just how dangerous that can be. Political Queen Danny is now hanging on by a fingernail. She attempts to douse the situation by admitting what Galazzo and his does suggested earlier on, but Dario only finds that humorous as well. Humorous and simple. If it's an end to the killings you want, hire me. I'll just kill everyone. No more enemies, no more killings. Simple. So Danny begins to see the true nature of this man, even if it doesn't dampen her desire for him, as he fends off each of her issues with such a solution. Not knowing who is innocent and who is guilty, attacking people she's supposed to be protecting, etc. He wants to deal with none of these intricacies, the details that are a queen's life. Kill and win. That's how Dario views life. The problem will be over, he believes, with no real thought for the potential killing of innocents, how this could inspire a larger, more violent rebellion and retaliation, or the optics of the thing how he would change the saviour queen into the butcher one. Is what he suggests so very different from what Cleon has done in Astapor? We must give our thanks that Danny is smart enough to realise all of this and not fall for his persuasion. He's not wrong that technically many harpies would be killed, sure, or that her own subjects would kill her given the chance. But we of course know that he is wrong in this being any sane way to rule. There is no thought to consequences or future, or even moral decency in this proposal. And why? It's because he doesn't care about that stuff, not in the slightest. And Danny thankfully never forgets that. She can want him, she can even love him, but he will never be the stuff of kings, she says. She's right about that, but really, Daru isn't the stuff of anything resembling a decent man. Cool as it is to see Danny be around someone she wants and get all these feelings from, we as readers are pretty uncomfortable at having someone with those tendencies so close to her. If we have such a feeling at this point, it only gets way, way worse when Dario casually suggests that Daenerys do it at her wedding. A wedding where you gather everyone, toast them, and then begin the slaughter as you smile. Hang on a moment, we've read this book before, haven't we? Yes, Dario Naharis is suggesting a reenactment of the greatest crime of the entire series, even if on a lesser scale. Luckily, before the pits of our stomachs completely fall away, we have this. Danny was appalled. He is a monster. A gallant monster, but a monster still. Whew, yeah, big sigh of relief there. Danny is not going to go down the route of the phrase, and she's not yet finished with cool lines either. Bear the butcher than the meat. All kings are butchers. Are queens so different? This queen is. Yes, there is some unfortunate truth in the idea that all kings are butchers, either directly or indirectly. But Daenerys is different, and this is one of those moments where it really hits you. Daenerys is not just out here learning how to be a queen and ruler all on her own, at a really young age, against incredibly difficult and lonely circumstances. She's learning to be the best queen and ruler, even with all that other crap weighing her down. Settling for what everyone else has done in the past isn't good enough for her. She wants to be better, she wants to help people, she wants to be the best, and she's got my vote. Daria's unfortunate answer to that is that if she doesn't want to be a butcher, she can be a bed warmer, and his does as good a choice as any for that. Her anger flashed. Have you forgotten who I am? No. Have you? Viserys would have had his head off for that instance. I am the blood of the dragon. Do not presume to teach me lessons. We have to take a little bit of pride in Daenerys not giving in to her physical desires or letting herself be manipulated or run over by this guy. In many ways, it's exactly the same deal as she had to defend against Galazzo and Hizda. So many people trying to push her in a corner and control her, but she's not having it. She's still a queen, and more importantly, she's still Daenerys, and she's too powerful for any of that. So Dario is sent off, and good riddance I say, because I'm not a fan of that guy. But Danny is so angry about the interaction, as well as aware of the effect he has on her, that she tells Sir Barristan to send the Stormcrows back out into the field again. Be nice, be respectful, but don't let Dario come near me again. Because Queen Political Danny came very, very close to giving in to a different version of herself. So just like that, off Dario goes again. Some of that decision was solid thinking, but some was temper. And late that night, Danny begins to question her command. She cannot sleep, she can find no satisfaction in Eerie. And now the one thing that perked up her day or seemed a rare piece of light compared to her normal news is gone. 
She had that to look forward to or wait for beforehand, but now he's never coming back, not to her at least. All that pent-up passion and want is going nowhere now, and she's left with the possibility of dry duty and drier kisses. Dang. But what's worse is the final paragraph of the chapter, when Danny reasons that she did it because otherwise he would turn her to a monster, a butcher queen, which she resolutely is not. That is her opposite, and we as readers know that to be true. But then she lets all that guilt out, the guilt of Hosea, of Drogon in the air, and the dragons down in the pit. She focuses on what they have done, and what they could do, and she thinks of herself as the same as Diana Harris. She thinks of herself as a monster. And here is where we must all cry, and leap up, and launch this damn book across the room as we cry out, No, Danny, no, you are not a monster, you are the very opposite, don't you see? Oh, dearest Danny, why do you not see? It cuts our hearts to see her think of herself this way. We can and should curse Marine and Galaza Galare and Hisdar and Dario and Yunkai and all these other factors just crushing down on her, sending her sinking further and further, making her more and more unhappy, and even worse, warping her own self-identity or how she views herself in the world. It's just not fair. She is, when you get down to it, one of the goodest people we ever meet. Uh, just goodest. I'm hang insisting on using that word. She's just good. She's wonderful. All she wants is to free people, keep them alive, look after them. And she deserves to feel amazing for all the steps she's already put towards that goal. She's changed uncountable lives for the better. Even if, of course, nothing is so cut and simple. We know how good she is and how unfair it is that she should feel this way. It's making me damn angry just talking about it, so I should probably cut this short. This chapter that really has as many Mirinese not slash Marinese crushing weight aspects as any other Danny chapter and one that just highlights how absolutely she should not feel like a monster because of what the dragons have done or could do. It is not her fault she has not mastered their control. It is not her fault they have an animal nature. She never ordered them to do anything so horrible and we all hope one day she'll claim that control. But even more so, we hope that one day she will gain the proper appreciation of herself and love who she is and what she's done. I really do genuinely hope that. As for the chapter itself, it is a brilliant one for seeing how the different elements of Marine push against her constantly, how the war outside and in worsens, and yet how Danny refuses to completely sell her soul. She puts her foot down on different aspects, even with Sebastian, and shows us a great mix of her doing what she thinks is right, and also being really politically smart in buying time with Hisdar and ensuring at least some form of win. Every chapter highlights Daenerys as a mother, and Daenerys doing the right thing as a queen, but this one sticks out for me, probably because it is placed so near to John V and his own kingly moment. And this is one of the real parts of the book where these two are so similar, nearly touching. We're about to enter a new phase of dance next week as the POV cast expands, and the storylines with it. So I feel this is a great statue of this part of the book, a great kind of tentpole if you like, and the storylines of these two specifically, and more importantly, how great they are. So let's leave Danny for there. Let's leave today's episode because it is a long one. It's a very, very heavy one. I hope you're able to get through it okay. I hope you enjoyed the episode in general, of course. Always welcome your thoughts and feedback, especially on stuff so uh, prominent and important as what we've covered in this episode. Next week, part seven. Like I hinted at a moment ago, we're entering a new phase of the book, which I'll explain at more length next week in the intro, so look out for that. But basically, we're just opening up. We've reached a new level. We spoke about it earlier in the reread project about when the name chapters and that come out when we get more POVs in and well we've reached it now I'm not sure I think we might only be doing three chapters next week I can't confirm that for you but I'm pretty sure that's what I read in the doc so let's just assume that's true with this little preview here we will have next week start with the lost lord slash John Connington one we'll follow that by Quentin two the windblown and finish possibly with the wayward bride 
slash Asher One. So you see what I mean? We've got two new POVs next week. We've got three straight title chapters. And well, I'll go into it more next time. But basically, the dance is opening up. The dance floor is opening up, if you want to call it that. So you know, we're looking forward to those ones. Very, very interesting. John Con, very, very good. The Windblown has a lot of tie-ins to what we've been speaking about today. And much, much, much better. We get Asher. And you know I love Asher. So looking forward to that. And that chapter in particular, just beautiful absolutely beautiful so looking forward to getting to that one and the reason by the way i think is three chapters next week is because that asher uh, chapter plus Tyrion seven which would be the one after are the two longest chapters in the book i believe so that might be why aziz and the share choosing to split could be four could be three we'll find out hopefully you'll join me next time thank you thank you again all wonderful people for coming visiting the aisle even in this rain as always do feel to get in touch and again thank you we'll see you next time <laughs>